Welcome back, everyone. We are live with Growing With My Fellow Growers, a product production of the Cheap Home Grow. This is Jack Greenstock filling in for Shane. I have a wonderful panel tonight with me, and we're going to be going back to the basics a little bit. So starting from seed, how everybody gets it done, and maybe even from cutting clone if that's how they choose to go about doing it. But I'm going to go ahead and introduce the panel now, starting with Matthew Gates. Yeah, hey everyone, Matthew Gates here, integrated pest management specialist. You can find my content, a lot of educational content about pests and pathogens and plant physiology on my YouTube channel, Xenthanol, where I will actually be publishing a FAC IPM video shortly. So check it out if you're interested in that. Thank you again for joining us. And I just wanted to address the fact I, I forget about it because I've shown my face on a few other shows, but I am showing my face uh, live on the show. Um, to me, I wanted to preserve anonymity for a little while, but I also um, like to have the focus be on the plant and not about myself as the grower. So, um, but that, with that being said, I'm uh, feeling more comfortable showing my face now, and I uh, just wanted to uh, address that before I go on and address, uh, I should say, introduce the rest of the panel. Next up, we have Dr. MJ. Hey, hey, everyone. I'm happy to be here. I, uh, Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. I uh, just gave away a Spider Farmer SF2000. I don't know if you guys were playing in our little giveaway there, but uh, CJ won this afternoon in the drawing. I'm going to send that off to him shortly. And we're getting geared up for the Plant Training Grow Challenge starting next month. So come on over and sign up for the PTGC. Looking forward to that. I always love seeing some awesome plant training. And uh, I think it's cool to see people growing alongside one another. Next up, we've got Aaron the Grower. I am Aaron the Grower, ATG Acres on Instagram. Um, I'm just a, just your general plant guy. Just trimming on some weed tonight while I join the, the wonderful panel. We are always happy to have you and thank you for joining us again. Next up, I'm gonna introduce uh, Rust Brandon. How you doing? I'm great as, as always. Uh, my name's Brandon Rust, if you don't already know me. Um, you can find my Instagram at rust.brandon with, uh, and then in my bio right there, there's uh, on the Instagram is a link to my company, Bokashi Earthworks and Majestic Craft Cannabis, which is the uh, cannabis facility that I'm the director of. Um, You're doing great work over there. And channel members, so. Oh, sorry to jump in front of you there. I was just saying uh, you do great work at Majestic Craft Cannabis and I'm excited to see you're getting your home grow kicking off as well. Um, always a big fan of what you grow and the numbers uh, don't deny your method. So shout out to that awesome product you're pumping out for the people in Oklahoma down there and for yourself at home. Next up, we have Dr. MJ. Oh wait, no, we already did Dr. MJ. I haven't been smoking a little bit too much. Wait, I'll do it again. <laughs> we'll, we'll go on over to the American. That's pretty funny. Hey, I'm the American one. Thanks for hosting, Jack. Uh, I'm the American one in YouTube, on YouTube and in chat. And I'm the American one underscore with underscore Akeens on IG. If you, don't forget the the in front of the American one and uh, look for the top hat guy. That's me. Well, thank you again for joining us. Always a pleasure. And the last member who is currently here, we might have some late joiners, but I'll go ahead and throw it over to Kyle. Hey, what's up, man? Glad everybody's here. Um, yeah, my name is Kyle Breeder. I'm the founder of Predicated Breeding. I'm a seed company. If anybody's looking for good genetics, feel free to go to pbreeding.com. Uh, if you're looking at anything that I'm working on, uh, you can go on any social media platform and look up Predicated Breeding. I did just fully get 
my homegirl back and going since after uh, the move I had and the issues I had with uh, my living situation prior. But uh, I'm full, full, full blown growing now, and uh, I have some new material coming in. I'm excited to share it with you guys if anybody's interested. Happy to hear that you're back growing the plants again. That's always a exciting time when you've been away from it for a little while and you can get back to production. I'm sure the people that are enjoying your seeds already will be happy to hear that. And they're gonna be looking forward to the new crosses that you have coming up. So I wanted to, uh, I think I've got everybody, right? Matthew, did you go? I did. Okay, good, good, good. So tonight I figured uh, it's fun to have sort of a loose general topic. And we haven't gone over this at least for a little while. And I think it's always fun to go back to basics sometimes. And uh, I was gonna start with how we all pop a seed or if you don't grow from seed, What's your method for taking a clone? And I could start off very simply by explaining my germination method, which is I do a little H2O2 soak in 3% hydrogen peroxide to clean the seed. And then I put that into a damp paper towel for 24 to 48 hours. And I plant that into my medium, which is usually a solo cup full of uh, Michigan made mix soil. And uh, next I'll pass it over to Brandon. What's up? So I was just saying, uh, we're going kind of back to basics and I wanted to get an idea of where everyone at the panel is with, um, you know, how they get started with their grow. And if you're starting from seed, what is your method for popping a seed? Uh, it depends on the age of the seed. Um, but typically the easiest method that I've always had the best success with is to do like a 20 hour, a 24 hour, uh, soak in water. Um, and then they'll usually crack in that time. Uh, they'll crack open. If they do, I put them in a wet paper towel in a bag until they're about, I don't know, an inch or so long. And then I stick that in some, some, you know, some soil that isn't very hot, you know, some very light nutrient, uh, very light nutrient wise. Um, and then I just, you know, keep them moist, keep them moist and under the sun. It's good stuff. I think uh, sometimes simple methods are uh, really good ones, and it sounds like you've got a method that works great for you. So the one thing I also wanted to address is at each of these stages, we'll jump over to Matthew to sort of get the IPM perspective of what sort of pests or pathogens are most likely to uh, impact a grower at that stage of the growth. So next up, I'll ask Kyle, um, what's your preferred method for popping a seed? Um, I'm kind of with, uh, with Brendan and, uh, and you, uh, for the most part, I mean, my typical is, uh, and I'm, I don't know if it's like being neurotic or not, but I use specifically, uh, Poland Springs water and it actually comes out exactly at 6.0, uh, at least 99.9% .9 of the time. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I just damp the paper towel. I put my seed in there and, uh, put it in a Tupperware and I put it in a dark room temperature spot and basically within 24 to 48 hours it pops. But what I've been doing now, uh, if I'm doing like scale, or I guess what I can say, a home grow scale, I guess we want to call it that, uh, I just grab solo cups and do the same exact water, the same pH, and just fill solo cups and label them, and then just drop them in the water. And within, same thing, 24 to 48 hours, I mean, I have tails and everything. And then from there, uh, it's just saves me from, it's just less labor intensive. And then from there, I'll go directly uh, into like, I'm doing what you're doing now, is I'll go into uh, uh, Michigan Made and uh Things seem to work pretty well. Uh, if you have really old seeds, gibberellic acid does work. Uh, that's something that I'm not going to talk about, and I suggest that you do research on because it's it's a long conversation about that and um, doing different uh, dilutions to make sure that you're not using too much. But um, yeah, basically uh, that's that's all I do. 
Very good. And uh, I've seen people go anywhere from like 25 EC to 150 EC on the gibberellic acid. So I've heard it can also make your plant stretch ridiculously. I'll do your research and uh, know what you're getting yourself into. Next up, Dr. MJ, I actually know your method because I've read it from your uh, guides on your website, or at least I presume I do. But uh, how do you like to start your seed? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I could go pretty deep on this because I wrote a big, long article about it. Um, You know, I I got a couple of tricks. I think that uh, scuffing seeds can really speed things along early. So I scuff seeds and then I only soak them for a couple of hours. Um, I put them into paper towels. I keep them warm. Uh, Usually in 24 hours from the time they touch water, they're ready to... to, um, go up into uh, the media into a, a starting pellet they have a, a nice little tail on them um certainly by 48 hours i mean if they don't have a good tail by 48 hours i start to lose hope um but yeah you know warm wet but in addition to being wet it's important to understand that the the little root as soon as it sort of opens it needs access to air um the the seed comes with stored energy but the plant needs to be able to respire in order to sort of access that stored energy efficiently. Um, And if it doesn't have access to air, so if you soak it for too long or if the paper towels are too sort of inundated in water, uh, you can drown the little seed. Um, The other thing is sort of an interesting tip is about the darkness. Um, It doesn't need to be dark initially, but darkness or uh, bright light can stunt the radical. Um, so once the, the root starts growing out of the seed, you need to keep the radical. So the tip of the root needs to be protected from light. Um, and usually when I pot up, so when I take the little sprouted seed out of the paper towels and put it in the media, I I really only bury the, the radical. I leave the seed itself pretty close to the, pretty close to the surface with almost no overburden. Yeah. I think sometimes when you not you, but people in general, if they go too deep, sometimes it can make it too challenging for that seed to uh, sprout up and uh, fairly close to the top of the medium, or even sometimes right on top of the medium, they sprout just fine. And you might have to help the seed casing off, but... Um, yeah, I often do have that. to help the seed casing off. Um, yeah, it, it also helps the up indication. So um, light starts to, to help the plant orient itself and know which way to grow. So once you put it into uh, a germination media, like a, a jiffy pellet, um, I have it under light and I leave the, the seed sort of exposed to the light, essentially the seed case. It's the tail, the root, and the radical that all get buried into the media. Sounds good. Well, uh, I think you gave a pretty good synopsis of uh, your method so far. Um, would you say that you've covered what you uh, do adequately and we could go on to maybe the American one? Oh, yeah, absolutely. For sure. All right. The American one. How do you like to start your seed? Yeah, I've pretty much done it <clears throat> every way you guys explained already at least once. Um, it depends on the seeds, where I got the seeds. If they're ones I made, I could just throw them in, you know, those... Um, those little hockey, hockey puck looking chiffy pellet things pellet. that absorb the water and swell. I just dumped them in there and uh, put a lid on it and forgot about it. Every single one took off. So if they're fresh, you could do it probably easier different ways. If they're old, I like putting them in a shot glass. And some people call it float tech. You let the seed kind of float on top, but let it stay in the water. And I like that because if they're floating, then they're not getting too wet. But And I've seen success with that but sometimes that doesn't work either. And then I stir it, let them sink. And then whatever happens, happens. 
some people, before you move on from that, I just wanted to make a note. Some people swear sure. that the seeds that sink are the only good ones and they'll throw out the ones that float. But I'm like, I've seen people get 100% germination with float tech and all those plants were awesome plants. So I'm with you. I think that it can work. And I think that's the thing where like the seed is um, on the bottom. Like, half of it is getting oxygen and half of it's getting water. So it can yeah. be a fairly ideal temperature and pH. Because I've seen other people do it and it makes a lot of sense. But I have also thrown right in the paper towels and I did just recently acquire some gibrilic acid powder that I'm going to figure out how to make appropriate dilution and try starting these. Uh, I got like 20 maybe seeds left of this one. I keep trying and failing. But uh, yeah, basically all the way you guys said it already. Well, we still have uh, Aaron the grower to go to for sure. And then I want to get Matthew's uh, opinion about maybe some IPM. Uh, potential risks that we could maybe try and avoid with uh, starting our seed. And I also, and I want to let Aaron answer first, but I haven't heard anybody say like, oh, I just go right into the medium. Even what you just said with the Jiffy, like that Jiffy pellet or a root riot is a little bit more. Um, yeah, it's a little different. Well, you're going to love my answer then. Good. <laughs> um, well, first of all, I agree with Brandon that it depends on the age of the seed. Also, it depends on how much I really want the seed to pop. Like if I only have 10 and they're like, lemon tree x orange cookies i'm like all over that shit and i'm making sure that you know i'm gonna do the gibberellic acid and i'm gonna hit them in the paper towel i'm gonna do everything but to be honest 99 percent of the time you guys are gonna love this it's crazy i put the seed in the soil and i water it i had a feeling that that was your uh method and that's why i kind of saved you for last because i think the simplest methods that work really well for a lot of people uh, i've actually had it work not well for me because i got the soil either too wet or it got too dry and um, that's why I, I prefer the paper towel method just until it gets a little sprout. I feel like I'm a little bit more forgiven if, uh, I, don't, I don't know, it, whatever works for Paper towel method, just a, just a heads up, watch out for bleached paper towels. I have seen um, stuff when I let it go past about an inch taproot, it just starts to, to like really uh, get necrosis, like necrosis yeah. and that, that's a, that's a true point. The other thing there is get the cheapest paper towels you can find pretty much for, for germination. You don't want multiple plies because the, the stupid little root will grow like in between the plies and then becoming very difficult to, to sort of separate. And they have other perfumes and dyes and stuff like that. So that's a really good point. about. That. Let me tell you a story about the time that I uh, germinated seeds in a, in, a, uh, in a towel, an actual towel. I had a wet towel, put the seeds in there and folded it. Dude, <laughs> I can imagine how this one. Each, each one pulling them out, I just shredded the taproot. Most of them survived yeah. because cannabis, you know, it's a miracle plant, but... Yeah. yeah, yeah, they'll grow into those kinds of things. Um, so you definitely want like just a cheap paper towel folded over and the, the root should stay between the same levels of ply. It becomes a nightmare. But just if that happens with the paper towel, you can just kind of cut it out and just leave that piece of paper towel in when you transplant. DJ Short shared an interesting method in his book. He talked about he got something either from like a cereal box or, or some random thing for some other germination. And it was like a sponge with like a bubbler that he was it, it like folded over and kept it moist, but it also provided a little bit of oxygen and kept it at a certain temperature. He said it worked really well for him for a while until he just, you know, I think goes with the straight into the medium method now, but there's a lot of ways to do it. Just got my uh, wife just came over and handed me my little capsule of uh, our, or I'll say FSO full spectrum oil. So I'm going to take my little medicine for this evening, but, um, I want to go ahead and pass it over next to. What Brandon. about Rick Simpson, though? Well, he used naphtha, and 
yeah but that but process he should be changed. accredited with his molecular you know Naphtha sounds discovery. like a terrible thing to ingest yeah, yeah so but he, he was using that before he realized how well the naphtha goes away right you're you're reclaiming it or you're but does it totally volatize i don't actually know I'm sure not all of it, but I mean, Typical I just feel like method. I'll just throw that out there. Absolutely. You should be grain alcohol. You should be using the illegal stuff. Speaking of FSO, I got this tip from Spartan Grown, who's being admitted into the room as we speak. I got these little uh, capsules or whatever, and you might be able to see just like the FSO dripped in there. And then I take half of it. And instead of like taking the whole thing. I feel like it allows your body to absorb it a little bit quicker than if it was capped and you had to digest the entire capsule. So shout out to Spartan Grown for that tip. And welcome, Spartan Grown. Go ahead and uh, introduce yourself. Hey, everybody. I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram at Spartan Grown. Or you can find out me at work at uh, Mitten Canico or all over YouTube. <laughs> yeah, so basically Spartan, all over YouTube. Spartan, we um, were a little bit about going back to basics that's what i labeled the name of this episode and i asked everybody on the panel how they like to sprout their seeds and everybody gave their method and after you give yours i want to go ahead and throw it over to matthew and, and see if he has any input on potential ipm strategies for germinating um for germination i just keep it real easy and i pop my seeds in a root right cube same thing you would do a clone in well some people do clones in um the same way I would with a clone, I, when I soak them in water, I, you know, I squeeze that extra moisture out, same kind of a deal. And then I'll put my seed in there just barely, just so it's barely at the soil level, you know, just past soil level. I mean, just down a little bit and that's it. And it works pretty damn good. <laughs> I don't I don't really have too many issues. Yeah, we're kind of getting to that point. It's like everybody sort of does it their own way and everybody's found a way that works for them. And I think that's great. I just think that it's nice when you have a panel of growers, if we all share our method and go back to those basics, because we do have new growers all the time, new people finding the show, new people just starting to grow, and they're going to either germinate a seed or get a clone from a friend. So it's nice to uh, go around and give them a bunch of different perspectives and realize that there's not just one way. A bunch of us have found success in doing various methods. So with no further said about germination, I want to give it to uh, Matthew Gates and see if uh, you have any thoughts on IPM-related issues uh, when it comes to sprouting seeds or even when taking cuttings. So just riffing off the idea that, like, some of these things are going to be kind of basic, but, like, for those who just um, aren't aware, you know, obviously the seeds, uh, if, you leave, if you leave them too much in the water, if you're doing things like um, or keeping them in, like, a towel or something like this for too long, um, or if you expose them to um, heat or light or something like this, you can have problems. Um, I know somebody who somehow, some way, I don't know, I don't know, this is going to be a unique situation, but I'm reminded of a time when somebody I know did actually use like a towel, kind of like Aaron's thing, and um, it got all slimy. Like there was some sort of bacteria or something that was on the... Um, uh, the the cloth or something I, I imagine and letting it stay sort of wet like he did um, allowed those seeds to get infected by some sort of pathogen and um, you really got to be aware of the fact that like and I'm curious I'm not really actually sure all that much about how much this really does happen but I'm sure that there are people who get seeds where maybe the seeds will have something on the hull that um, 
will infect the plant. And that certainly happens in other agricultural crops. So I would not be surprised if it happened here, um, not to get too much into like seed endophytes and that kind of a thing. Um, but you know, you've got your pathogens like Pythium and um, Botrytis and uh, Phytophthora and that kind of a, that kind of a thing where um, it can be very pernicious and it can be super lethal and kind of come out of nowhere if you're not thinking about it. And ways to avoid that on a well on a commercial uh, scale, like if people are producing seeds, it might make sense to wash them in some sort of a uh, sterilant, a very light sterilant or something like this. Um, I don't know how many people actually make that as their practice. I'm curious if uh, predicative breeding does anything like that, actually. I use hydrogen peroxide solution at H2O2 wash. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I do the same. It depends if it, like with my seeds, uh, I mean, I just know where they, where they've been and, and how they were handled. But yeah, if it's typically if I have outsourced seeds or if they're old seeds, I definitely do that because I had issues uh, with a lot of older seeds that I was given and collected from other people that I actually had like this bacteria growing in the paper towel and you could see like these black spots and green spots. And uh, I knew then that uh, this is way back when, but I knew that I had to start washing them. So it, it is a thing. I um, saw some, remember who it was. They may have even had their page deleted on Instagram since, but they bred their own seeds as well. And they did a hundred seed germination versus a hundred seed germination with just like plain tap water with um, no treatment of the seed. And then they did the H2O2 wash and it was in the high 90 percentage for the H2O2 wash where the tap water alone was in like the 70% range and over a hundred seeds. That's a lot bigger pop than I would typically do. So that made me feel strongly enough that over time, if I do use that method, um, one, it's safe and two, it might prevent some of those seeds that maybe germinate, but then like die off early on in the paper towel or even in the medium for whatever reason they don't go. Um, maybe it could prevent that from happening. Another tip I wanted to give for any new growers is a light, very light breeze over the top of where your seedling is can help prevent some like fungus gnats and other things because your plant doesn't have a huge root mass where it's going to be taking up the water super quickly. And with that being said, the medium will be wet for a little bit longer than if it had more roots. And if it stays wet for a really long time, you could start to see some algae forming at the top or just start to see fungus gnats getting attracted to it and keeping it a little bit drier um, without being overly dry. There's still some water in the bottom of the medium will uh, help prevent some of those issues while keeping your plant alive and healthy. I have a tip that maybe some people might not feel the same about it, but if, if anybody is doing that paper towel method and you do get like a solid inch and a half or inch uh, taproot, you don't need to bury the shell beneath the dirt at that point. You, cause, I mean, at least for me, I basically will bury the whole root and, and I'll, just have just the shell head above the soil and uh, that way it just allows it to just crack open and start growing i feel like a lot of people do uh i mean i see it all the time where they just they they have the tip and then they bury the whole thing and then it, it has issues trying to get out i think um i've done it both ways where i've had the shell just literally floating at the top of the medium and i've also buried it like a few centimeters and both worked for me um it feels like some seeds have a little bit easier time when you leave the shell at the top they just sprout up and like we were talking about earlier, you can help it off with your fingers. And if you do that, once you get the seed off, sometimes there's a little skin that I've noticed. I take my thumb and finger just like this and sort of like massage the cotyledons, um, however it's pronounced. I probably mispronounced it always, but... That sound good. Um, you remove that little skin and then it helps those first two leaves open up and like struggle and just kill itself out before it gets to pop. 
and it allows those first true leaves to start forming. So that's uh, something I had to do in my current run, even though sometimes the seed case popped off, it still had that little skin for one reason or another. So a uh, little finger, two finger massage like that. You gotta be real gentle because like I shake and you can totally like a few runs ago, I ripped the head off of one of them because uh, arthritis just like made me shake real fucking violently when I held it and uh, I killed one. But for the most part, I think you're gonna save more than you're gonna kill doing that method. When I do that, I try to hold the stem very lightly with my other hand just to avoid sort of yanking the whole sprout right out of the media, which I've done before. Um, but I just wanted to, to stress to be gentle in those situations when you're manipulating a young sprout like that. But yeah, I agree, Jack. It sometimes needs to be done. Absolutely critical. Um, the seedling is at, oftentimes well, most I've like damaged a plant or uh, caused it issues back when I was growing in cocoa. If I had a little too high of an EC or too low um, by not giving it any nutrients at all or something, it could cause an issue much more than if you were like later into veg, the plant could just take it. It's more resilient. But speaking about leading later into veg, I think for uh, continuation, we've got plenty of time. We're only about 25 minutes in with the seed popping. And for the basics, we could maybe run through what you do then from taking your seed. Like Tao talked about, he was in a jiffy pellet. Uh, maybe goes into like a solo cup or something and then goes into like a one or two or five, however many gallon pot. But like me personally, I let it get maybe three, four nodes in the solo cup. And then I switch it over to a one gallon pot for most of its early veg and uh, let it grow there and do all the early training while it's in that one gallon pot. And uh, with that being said, I want to throw it over to uh, the American one. Why not? I just mentioned you. Uh, we don't need to go in a specific order every time. So um, let me start by saying, you know what I like about uh, starting seeds in a way, I like when you can see the root, if they're old seeds or very precious seeds, uh, if you just bury them, they might just get lost. And uh, yeah, I go, depending on cuts or whatever, I got these little baby, I start my cuts in Promix actually now, it's been, a, it's been like that for a while. And I go from these little cups into solo cups into one gallons and into five gallons. And that's it for right now. And uh, I thought there was something else I was going to say. I guess that's it. That's, yeah. Any uh, magic juju that you do at the transplant? I personally like to use mycos, uh, mycorrhizal uh, fungi. Yeah, I put a sprinkle of that. And I like, I have, I get the azos too from uh, Extreme Gardening. And I have a couple of different mycorrhizal uh, additives, you know. But whenever I do, I put it in the shaker. I have a shaker separate. And I put some ezos in there with it. I just let it go in there, screw it. The powder's in there. I don't know if it's gonna start growing or what inside that, but I haven't had an issue yet. And I just sprinkle some of that into, you know, after I make the spot where that plant's going, right before I put it in there, I sprinkle a bunch of that in there and then I water it in. I love that method. The uh, shaker, I think, makes it a little bit more even distribution. I, I have a, a little spoon that I put it on and shake it out trying to get it evenly, get it directly contacting the root zone. Uh, Spartan Grown, I see that you're smoking over there, so I'm going to take a hit while you go ahead and explain what you do after your seeds uh, pop. So I've gotten jiffy pellets, uh, and one of the reasons I use those jiffy pellets is kind of what the American one was just going over. If they don't pop, I can see them. <laughs> Another reason I don't put them way down in there, I just put them down, you know, past the what would be the soil surface, and, uh, and, uh, I'll just look at it, you know, I, I can still tell if they're moving or not and that kind of thing. After they've sprouted, 
I wait until I can see a root come out, come out of that jiffy pellet. So just as if you were cloning in a clone dome, you know, you want to see at least a root coming out. I'm doing that so that, you know, how Jack brought up the inoculation, you know, if I can see the root, then it's pretty easy to inoculate it. You know what I mean? With some mycorrhizae and you don't have to use a whole hell of a lot. You just got to get it on the root. You don't have to put it all throughout the soil. If you can, if you have roots sticking out. So that's what I wait for is root. And then I, I will give it a, a mycorrhizae inoculation and then uh, right into the soil. Um, usually I'll make a little hole in the soil before I put it in there. And I will, that's where I'll apply just a little bit of insect frass because I like to think that that frass is going to be making root contact. That's another one of those root contact things um, to get that response, that immune response in the plant. And then one thing that I'm going to start doing that I just learned from um, Collectimus Coot on one of the future cannabis project things he did was uh, he likes to line that hole, the hole that you're going to plant in with worm castings. So I'm going to do that too, because that sounds like, why wouldn't I do that? I just never thought to do it. I stole that tip and uh, <clears throat> used a little spoonful underneath the mycorrhizal when I transplant. So I think that's definitely great. It's a great part of any uh, organic soil method. So I think it makes a lot of sense. I think that's the thing that a lot of people don't um, don't uh, appreciate a lot of the times. What you just said, Spartan. You don't need a whole ton of it. A lot of you know, pretty much all the time with mycorrhizae at least, and yeah, really any microbial at that point. I see people go absolutely crazy with it. I'm like, why? Why? Yeah, where's the root system that's ostensibly going to uh, facilitate this, or any of the other things that you might need, depending on what microbes you're putting in there? Yeah, I totally agree. And in a world where we have a show called The Cheap Home Grow, where we're trying to make our dollars stretch as far as possible, get our lowest cost per gram at the highest quality, um, making that product stretch a little bit longer, if it doesn't need to be applied at a heavy rate, apply it at a light rate if it's still effective. So I think that there's definitely a lot to be said about that, uh, the frugal way of growing. With that said, Brandon, uh, I know you're also an organic gardener. What do you like to do when you're going from your seedling uh, to your veg? Um, I usually just put it in whatever size pot it's going to finish. That's what I like to do best. I'm Sorry. actually of that mind. I'm a little bit fussy right now, but um, typically for me, I think it's the like easiest way to uh, plant. Um, that way you don't have to transplant anything. There's no possible, you know, there's no chance for that excess stress. I also notice a lot of times my bird is trying to mimic me. Right now. Uh. <laughs> okay sorry um it's okay we love lucky here uh, but yeah i i wanted to ask a question about the going into the final pot i think a lot of people have great success with that especially like i said in an organic uh, soil situation is there any tips that you might have for a new grower on how to potentially avoid overwatering your plant while it's in that uh, a smaller plant in a giant pot yeah, so one of the best things to do and one of the things that I like to make sure is that my soil is highly aerated. And I like to have something like pumice, which isn't, which isn't going to float to the soil surface. Um, I, like to, I, like to make my, I like to mix my soil with uh, rice holes. Uh, that's H-U-L-L-S. Uh, and it's basically just the husk of a rice kernel. Um, and that's going to release silica. So that'll help build up and strengthen cell walls in the plants, but also, um, all that extra, um, all that extra pore space is going to allow for water, um, to penetrate, 
into that soil more thoroughly. Um, and you'll be able to retain uh, the water, uh, but you'll also have that pore space for gas exchange, which helps increase the microbial communities in the soil. And it also helps, you know, the roots get down into the spaces and it's just, it just, uh, overall, it's just, if you're using modified soils and the types of things that we are for growing cannabis, it's, it's just one of those things that I, I recommend that everybody do probably at least, you know, 40% aeration in their mix. I think, uh, that's pretty healthy amount it provides a lot of oxygen to the root zone i've seen people get away with as little as like 30 but that's in other um, mediums like cocoa where there's a lot of oxygen provided anyway and with cocoa being brought up i want to give it over to dr mj coco what do you like to do uh transplanting from your seedling into your veg part of the process yeah it's one of the the sort of trickier times in cocoa really is the seedling stage so I have a whole article guideline sort of on day by day, how to kind of balance the issues with um, CalMag and in, you know, the low EC demands of a plant that's small like that and sort of how to ramp it up so that you can start delivering a better CalMag dose. So that's one side of the, the sort of seedling issue is the fertigation ramp up. Um, I definitely transplant. I start what well, I start like in paper towels and then uh, jiffy pellet and then when the root comes out of the jiffy pellet I go into a seedling bag um, which is about the same size as a party cup um, from the seedling bag I let it get up to growing past the third node and then I go into a half gallon or a one gallon container um, I let it double in size and I top it in that one gallon container um, and then I pot up into the final container um, and you know, that's sort of like, I think the seedling stage is until they're sort of past the third node at that point they're in veg, but I'm still sort of in my, in my transplant sequence and, um, you know, still actively training the plant at that stage. Thank you so much for your uh, input there. And I had a question about when it doubles in size, you're just going straight on the vertical growth. And if so, are you doing any uh, bending or training at that point? Or are you just letting it go free flow straight up at that point still? Yeah, no. So it's usually in at um, three nodes or growing past the third. And then I let it grow past the sixth node and then top it, let it recover from topping, and then, which is usually just the next day. Um, and then transplant pot up into the, the final container. Um, so that doubling in size, it's actually a few extra days after that, since I've started always, um, topping before that final transplant. So, um, the doubling in size is from three nodes to, so past the third node to past the sixth node. Very cool. And, uh, just curious, what is your final container size? Um, I'm, right now I'm using number five air pots, which are like 3.75 gallons or somewhere around there. Um, but air pots, which sort of are their own animal to an extent in terms of comparing sizes of them. Very cool. And uh, I think uh, we'll go ahead and pass it over to Kyle at uh, Predicated Breeding. What do you like to do when you're transplanting from your seedling over to your veg stage? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it really all depends on uh, if I'm doing flower or, or seeds. Um, just a small quick tip before that. So for me, what works really well 
so I only fill my solo cup only three quarters away, allowing that stretch so I can fill in the last quarter so it's not just toppling over because I know that's a, that's a thing too. Just a random tip if anybody has issues with that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I usually go from solo to, uh, to three. And then uh, if I'm finishing off in like flower, I'll, I'll jump to sevens. But if I'm just trying to like, it, it's just hard because I grow intense, you know, I don't have like a, a I have, obviously I have space issues. So I'm, I'm forced to keep things in limited pots, which also helps keep uh, height, you know, the bigger the pot, the bigger the plant's going to get. But yeah, so I'll go from solos to threes and then from threes to fives or sevens, depending on what I'm trying to do uh, for the most part. And uh, for the solo cup, so if, if I do have, you know, certain strains, obviously, or cultivars, obviously feed more than others. I have a, I use Stonington blend. So I obviously have the Michigan made, like I mentioned before, but I'll just kind of drizzle some Stonington blend on top of that. And that keeps it uh, uh, pretty well fed until I'm ready to jump to the three. If, you know, if some aren't quite ready or if some are starting to see, uh, you know, your typical first signs are like uh, nitrogen and CalMag deficiencies. Um, so that's a good product to use to just kind of, uh, you know, layer on the top there if anybody's having issues with that. But uh, yeah, that's basically all I do. Very cool. Thank you very much for uh, sharing your process. And I know I don't want to seem like I'm blazing through this or anything, but we do have a number of panelists on, on tonight, and I think it's awesome to hear from everybody. So I wanted to give it over next to Aaron, the grower. So when you're going from a seedling to veg, what do you like to do? Um, well, let me just say, first of all, that usually I'm a clone guy, so I only pop seeds here and there. Um, that said, I've popped, you know, hundreds of seeds, but um, so I realized we didn't talk much about clones. So I'd love to touch on that a little bit because I do have a lot more experience with them. That said, um, I like the idea that Brandon had of just going right into your final pot, especially as an outdoor guy, there's no spare room. You can't, if you underwater for a day in the summer in this heat, it'll fry <clears throat> so quick that, and you know, seedlings are so much more vigorous they'll use that space so much quicker so if they're going to flower in a 10 gallon fabric pot they're going into a 10 gallon fabric pot right as soon as they're germinated um but for you indoor guys if you're doing that i would just say be forewarned of overwatering, which can be a major issue if you're uh if you're potting into a big pot and it's a little plant um a lot of times well seedlings are super vigorous but a lot of times plants can't handle that much water yeah, I think uh, like we were talking about with Brandon earlier, it's important if you uh, are in a large pot to make sure that you have uh, enough aeration in your mix to give yourself the best chance possible for the microbes and for the water and air to move throughout the soil and uh, for water retention as well. Because when there's an active microbial community, you can actually, uh, I think, have the water be better used and maintained in there uh, than just like running straight through and dripping off. So, Absolutely. But also, you have to remember that your environment around your soil is going to play a big uh, factor in the ability for that soil to retain that water, too. Because, I mean, right. if you're in a really dry place, it's obviously just going to dry out faster. And if you're in a place where you're getting a decent amount of hum humidity, either if you're outdoor and you get, you know, natural humidity, like where I'm at here, it's always, you know, it's sometimes 100 degrees during the day, but there's always moisture on the lawn in the morning you know there's always the humidity so um, some places it's different and then obviously if you're indoor you control your environment um, that's a huge that, that's a huge factor that um, plays a big role in nutrient cycling that I, I think a lot of people don't take into consideration um, is actually the temperature and humidity because when you think about like 
um, making your own microbes and like producing them, you're, you're, you're doing it at a certain temperature where those things, you know, operate best. And if you can get your soil to the, to a temperature where it's where those populations are really, you know, really thriving, um, without doing any type of damage to your root system, your root zone, there's like a, you know, it's like a, there's a zone right there that just. And as soon as you kind of like get out of that zone, your soil is going to freak out because that doesn't have the microbiology to handle that particular pH or, you know, sulfur or whatever the, you know, the up, you know, the increase, uh, you know, factor might be. It's like a soil. Everyone always talks about how hydro is like the race car or whatever, but when soil is dialed in and all the temperature and everything is proper, you can get some really amazingly fast growing and healthy plants in a soil system. So I think like Brandon was just discussing is there's a lot more that goes into it that sometimes people are not considering that may uh, lead to more success in some systems. Don't just accept when people are like, oh, soil uh, doesn't perform. You know, maybe they just haven't seen it perform like Being other people have gotten pull, into. Cool from resources that I've, you know, acquired over, you know, just doing social media and just networking. Um, I, I work with uh, the soil doctor, so we can look at soil testing and do like, you know, maximize soil health for the potential of the plant based off of actual numbers. As Dude, Bryant... To- Yes. He's, he's one of the smartest soil guys I've ever spoken to. He's, he's super busy. So I never have the time to like chat with him, but dude, that guy is smart, man. Yeah. His, he, I get to, you know, I talk to him pretty frequently and uh, we have a lot of views on the same on, on agriculture. So we get along really well. It's one of the reasons why, you know, I reached out to him and um, if you, if, if, you know, the list shout out to the guy, uh, if, if you guys want to find him he's on um instagram the soil doctor mm-hmm. drop some really good knowledge that's really specific especially to my type of agriculture that i'm so um it's really helpful it's uh you know it's making me better at actual agronomy you know which is you know i, I since i understand how how the nutrient cycling works and everything else it it's another link that ties you know, organic cultivation together where I can maximize my output and decrease my input because I only need a couple of things to, to put it back into my soil if I need them. And it's very small quantities. So I love that. It's at the like intersection of uh, nature and science where you're able to finally now test soil and get a pretty good idea of exactly what needs to be put back into it. If you want to recycle it for a second run, or even if you're noticing that there's a problem on that run, taking like a leaf tissue sample and realizing that there's some sort of deficiency or excess that could be corrected earlier than uh, maybe visually would show uh, deficiency or, or excess. So Dude, there's a lot shout of out, cool Brandon. science use. How, what's going on with those tests that you ordered? I meant to follow up with you. How are they working out? Did you do the SAP test or? Okay, so the Lamont soil test kit that I bought, right? I started doing, I took base sample and these things are calibrated for uh, agriculture soils, right? Like field agronomy. So when you start using modified growing mixes, uh, all of the nutrients are all read over read. So they have a SOP in the instruction manual on diluting the ratio and then multiplying it by the dilution rate. 
Like if you delete it by four, then you time, you know, then you multiply it by four on the readout. So I've been, uh, what I have to do is I have to get exact, precise scientific measuring tools. Like I have a pipette and I need specific pipette heads. So that way I know the exact amount because what's happening is I'm taking the same samples and I'm getting different readings. Hmm. So I basically build a whole new SOP for using that soil testing method uh, for modified soil mixes. It's that cation exchange capacity that fucks everything up. I'm hey, super I, interested to see. Because when you look at like the, the Malik 3 test from like, you know, I use Logan Labs, for instance, um, you can see the cationic exchange and it's so high. It, it would be like, you would never be able to do that in like a soil system. You, you would, your plants would immediately die if you hit them with yeah. something you know exactly so it's just it's this completely different way of of kind of looking at the way plants acquire nutrients and minerals and it's both from the the direct contact that you would see from like hydroponic systems but it's also the biological uh and then the secondary metabolites the nutrient cycling the watering it's how everything falls into solution yeah. when you water um, so there's a lot pH of age fluctuates, you know, different hours of the day, you can have like six in the morning and eight by the time you go to bed. You know, that's, that's just microbiology byproduct. Yeah, so there's a it, there's a lot of factors. Um, but understanding this, and, you know, it sounds really complex, but really what it comes down to is proper environmental factors and proper soil nutrition. If you've got everything that needs to be in the soil, and you have the right environment, it's it pretty much is almost autopilot you know make yep. sure they make sure the, the soil's wet love it good stuff well i wanted to uh give matthew gates a chance to jump in because i actually had a few questions about sometimes i hear people uh, talking about their ipm methods and veg and i wanted to see if sort of you agree with uh the common what i'll call the common knowledge um or if you have a difference of opinion or if maybe it's just as many things are uh, circumstance dependent. But I hear a lot of people saying that they use one IPM during their veg process versus a different IPM in their flowering process. And that's, I think, reasonable for a lot of different reasons. But uh, do you think that that's a good thing to do? And if so, um, what are some reasons that somebody might want to try and do something like that? Uh, specifically, what, what uh, differences was that? So like, one I see often is people will say like, oh, I'll foliar, uh, and I think Spartan Grown has said this on the show in the past, it's like he'll use uh, either sulfur in veg or like Dr. Zymes in veg, but then he won't spray anything in flower after a certain point. He'll switch over to uh, Predator or just uh, D-Leaf or fight it some other way. But um, I I've heard that a lot, and I sort of agree with it as a general philosophy, but uh, I was curious if you had thoughts about like, is it okay to use sulfur in veg and then stop using it in flower? Is there any like repercussions or something of using something earlier on, at, like sulfur in particular, or um, let, let's, let's just keep it at that? Sure. So yeah, definitely. Um, I'm of the opinion, and I think there's a lot to sort of back it up that, well, for one, like, let's just put it this way. One of the things that even for myself, when it comes to like applying any sort of compound or product or anything at um, 
like even in my own garden and things like that. So I'm not always, I'm always reticent because I never know exactly what things are being tested for or not tested for. Um, I'm, I'm a fan of like regulation for, for pesticides because we want to know and make sure that the things, whether they're biological or chemical or whatever, only have the things that we want to have in them and not have the things we don't want in them and that sort of a thing. And I live in California, as you know, which is a very stringent um, pesticide state, the most stringent in the United States of America, more stringent than some countries even. Um, but for me, like you, like spraying something in a flower, for one thing, um, it's definitely like a gradient of like things that I think would be more acceptable or less acceptable. But as a matter of course, I don't like to do that typically spraying flower. Um, there are reasons that are more or less controversial than others. Like for example, um, I wouldn't want to like disrupt the trichome you know, production. I wouldn't want to accidentally disrupt some of the trichome heads. I'd want to kind of keep it as, as um, sort of hands-off and undisturbed as possible. You know what I mean? Like kind of in the same way, like if it was like a flower or fruit, like if you uh, damage the stigmas and the pistols and things like this, like you can uh, make the fruit abort, that kind of a thing. So it's sort of in that same mindset. And of course, the unique thing about cannabis is that you're smoking the entire flower material, right? So you know, it's very hard to, you know, once you, once you mix, mix two liquids, it's hard to separate those liquids. And it's kind of the same concept here too. And with sulfur in particular, that would be very bad because inhaling sulfur is very bad for your health. Um, uh, for your and lungs. to clarify, he, he doesn't spray in, in flour and, and nor do uh, most people, but some people aren't aware. So it's definitely uh, important to make note of things like that. But I agree with you on the um, letting it sort of be as undisturbed as flower portion. And one of the main reasons is most of the terpenes and THC in particular are basically the plant's natural defense mechanism against pests. If they were to come about, many of the terpenes are pest deterrent. And THC in particular is like debilitating for many insects and uh, other things to eat. So I think that the plant has its own natural defense mechanisms that are best expressing at that time. Like I've seen an ant which um, sometimes they do husband aphids and things like that. But I didn't have a huge problem with them. It was just like a sugar ant type thing from living in Southern California. They're all over the place, but they wind up getting in your home and they're in relatively small amounts. But one creeped up my plant and got close enough to a bud and it just got completely stuck in the resin. <laughs> like I was looking at the bud and it was so, it was a really tiny ant and it had gotten shriveled up being in the light and everything. I was like, what is that on that bud? And I looked at it with a microscope, actually, because it had gotten so shriveled up. The trichomes completely encased the ant and killed it. And I just plucked that little part of the leaf off, and it was on its way. So the plant definitely does have its own natural natural defense mechanisms. It's the same thing as, like, we think we're so powerful until, like, we try to cut down a tree and it falls on us and we're dead. It's like, they have more power than, than we think. I think that's more gravity than anything else. Yes, and they use that for trapping and things like that in the certain you're parts of the wilderness. So uh, literal. But, but metaphorically, you're right. We do. Uh, I'm 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 stoned. All right. My friend told me a story about how he was trying to cut down some sort of um, agave plant. I want to say a large agave plant, like or agave tree. Like a yucca plant or something. Maybe a yucca plant. Yeah, I don't know. I can't remember exactly which plant it was, but they said they were hacking it with a machete, and as they were whacking into it, something that it was letting off 
completely like gave him a huge rash all up and down their face and neck and it like he was like battling the plant like he was trying to kill it and it was like fuck no you're not going to kill me it was giving off its own natural defense mechanism and he got really messed up by it so interesting to see that like nature has defense mechanisms that are prone to work on people as well as animals I suppose, Aaron, instead of being the tree or the sword of Damocles, it's the tree of Damocles that we're cutting into right now. We'll see if it falls on us. Thanks. Thanks for giving me a point or two on that. I appreciate it. <laughs> I had to make a, a intellectual reference to really save face there. So I appreciate you giving me that opportunity. Uh, anytime. I got a question for someone here. So and I feel like I asked Can this when he was here. Uh, bless his soul. I haven't seen him in a while. But um. So let's say you do have a healthy IPM covering of sulfur on your plant and you do throw in the flower and you don't use it anymore. When you go to get that, that flower lab tested, are there zero traces of that sulfur in that lab test? Does anybody, it, it, anybody? You'd have to test it to find out, I think. But um, I, would say, I would say yes, because yeah. the flower hasn't formed the last time you sprayed. So there's no sulfur on the flower because it doesn't exist. It grows later. So I would say there's no sulfur on that flower unless somehow... Yeah, but what about the sugar? Yeah, but you're plant, you're spraying the sugar leaves too. It's not like you're just spraying the fan leaves. So I would just think there'd be some, you know, what I mean, what the once the veg, flower. In veg, you are in veg. It's all fan leaves, man. What what spark? I don't know. I also do stuff that's stripped off. Yeah, so, yeah. it volatilizes off. But I don't know how detectable it is to be honest. After that point, after like two days, five days, ten days, I don't actually know. So, person. what I would, what I would concerned with if you are a sprayer of sulfur is that if you spray on some kind of a schedule like like the way i use sulfur i'm only using it in the clone size it doesn't get used after that but if i were to be spraying it on like say a weekly or bi-weekly schedule and then moving it into flower i'd be concerned on the nutrition aspect of it the plant can absorb some of that stuff so if it's used to getting some sulfur all the time you know, a little bit of sulfur all the time. And all of a sudden you cut it off right in the flower. I'm not sure if that's going to have a negative effect as far as plant response, you know, maybe a, a stressor of some sort, or, uh, you know, maybe even drive some sort of a deficiency. I'm not sure. I would be, you know, have that in the back of my mind and be looking for something like that though. Yeah. And um, grumpy grower here in the chat says that sulfur, although spell the old way hangs around and I would agree with that. Like there is some volatilization that happens. I think that's also part of the reason why there's such a, um, a focus on like labels. You know, you read your labels with your pesticides and your, um, you know, your treatments because uh, mixing too much or too little can either not have the effect that you want or have a bunch of effects that you didn't expect to have, for example. That's a great piece of advice for anyone here on the panel and anyone listening. But I wanted to... Uh maybe get a less sophisticated note and lighten up the mood a little bit here and ask, uh, what's everyone smoking? Spartan, I saw you hotboxing it up over there earlier. It looks like a little bit of the smoke is cleared, but uh, what you smoking on tonight? I have had a little bit of everything. Um, the joint I smoked was the autoflower, the purple um, dra dragon, purple dragon from Morningstar Seed Company. That was really tasty. And then uh, I've been smoking some Spartan glue that I have ground up here. And I don't know, man, I had a whole pile of weed ground up for Percy's show before this. And so uh, I smoked through all of that and I have a little bit of Spartan glue right here. And I don't know what I'm going to, oh, Crescendo is what I'll be getting into next. I've got a jar of Crescendo here. 
a little bit left in here to get through. So that'll be my next project. <laughs> Sounds like some good stuff. That crescendo is from Ethos, and I think by way of sequence, if I remember remember correctly. Yeah, I grew that myself. But I got the cut from sequence. Yep. Very cool, uh, Brandon. I saw you had a pretty badass bong. Uh, I have some similar glass in my collection. Yeah, the thing is pretty wicked. Hell yeah, man. Uh, do you know the name of the art? You just said you got it from the dude Dave or whatever at the farmer's market, but uh, yeah. I love that style of glass. I don't know what the name of it is. If anybody in chat knows, hit me up with a DM. I think that's awesome. I have a few pieces like that. Plug. <laughs> I love it, dude. I actually bought a bunch of stuff just because I was out here and I didn't see any uh, like real good glass shops or anything. So I was like, oh, I'm going to get some of this stuff and sure somebody will grab some up surprisingly most of it i've sent back to california where it came from <laughs> um i'm smoking on i'm smoking on this death breath it is a limarilla crossed into um the san diego mountain kush which was another variety that i made in i think like 2015 and it was the clone only 1990 purples purple kush uh, crossed into Grape God, and then I hit that with the Limerilla, and it's it's funky, man. It's the weirdest, craziest smelling weed. It's like super hard to describe because it's got like it's got it's got such a complex terpene pro profile, and it's like skunky, musky. It's fruity and cheesy, but it has it. But it's like, but it has kind of like a nasty rank to it. Like, like it's kind of like gross, you know. Um, I feel like sometimes the ones that are a little bit gross that have that crazy broad uh, range of aroma sometimes are like the most potent for me. That like foot stink or like just really uh, funky odors tend to be really potent in my experience for whatever reason. Like GMO and uh, ChemD and a lot of those crosses. It's nice. I really like it. It's a good stone. Uh, the American one. I figure you're smoking down over there. What are you smoking on? So high you can't unmute. Sorry. Just kidding. Yeah, nah. I was hitting some uh, time rack. I'm still hitting this time rack. I, uh, I like it a lot. And uh, I ate, uh, my buddy actually came by, stopped over, and he offered me a special brownie. I ate over half of that, and I'm feeling groovy. What are you hitting on there, Jack? That microphone, what's what? Is that a uh okay? You got the little uh yeah sound uh barriers, I they call it. It's very clever. Caps. Very clever. I it's like called a, a beanie. So when I become full gangsta. when I become full a zigzag or a zigzag man, I can throw the beanie on for the, the whole look. Well, yeah, buy the new and improved audio beanie only nineteen ninety five. For those who don't know, it's uh, acting as a pop filter. So when I say P's and B's and things like that, the beanie over it acts like one of those uh, little foam things that you see on a lot of reporters' microphones that cuts out some of the wind and allows the audio to come through a little bit more clearly and things like that. Oh, you know, hey, you know what? Uh, Michigan might see some Lamarilla soon. I sent off sequence a couple of beans. So, uh, oh, shit. You got to make sure you hit them up, Spartan. I will. Oh. I will. Yeah, you, those are no joke. Honestly, Brandon breeds some of the best stuff I've ever had myself. I, I'm not ashamed to say. I don't know why I'd be ashamed to say, but you know. 
You're not like trying to sell out by saying it, I think, is what you want the people to know. And he legit does. I've smoked some of it, and it's fantastic. And I know Spartan's going to be over there because you're over there fogging his greenhouse with uh, Dr. Zimes and whatever. So I know you guys uh, are doing it up uh, good over there in Michigan, really building that cannabis community. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'll have to get that for sure in my garden. You know, we love our our GG4 in Michigan. So to have a new flavor GG4, fuck yes. All about it. That Dr. Zombie too, man. I love that product. That's one of the things in my clone regimen. You know, we were talking about clones earlier. Um, before I uh, started working on a commercial scale, I used aloe vera gel. And I would just take a leaflet from my backyard and I would use that as a cloning gel. Um, but it was a much smaller scale. Um, I suppose I could try to cultivate a bunch of aloe. Uh, and do the same thing. But um, I found that just using really, you know, good water, soaking my plugs with the RO water um, and taking my cuts. Uh, I so I take all my cuts and I throw them in a five gallon bucket with enzymes and water. And then what I'll do is I'll just pull them out after I have my plant trimmed up, you know, I'll go plant by plant. I'll pull those out, rinse them off, and I'll just put them in my root plugs, put the dome on there. And, you know, in two weeks, they're all ready to go. I don't have to use any type of hormone. I don't have to use any, you know, rooting powders or gels, anything like that. It's just plug and go. If you have good, healthy plants, I I don't see too many, you know, um, uh, plants uh, die off. The only, the only thing that does occasionally happen is, the, uh, you know, sometimes they'll dampen off before they root. But, you know, when you're taking thousands of clones, you can expect that, you know, it might happen here and here and there. Speaking of clones, that reminded me of something I wanted to bring up back then when uh, Jack was asking about, you know, watering. One thing that's really um, an easy thing to do and it helps a lot is um, buy those pictures. You can see them at every grocery store, but with like the milliliters marked out on the side. I had one here. It's a bigger one. But, you know, it's got all the numbers on the side so that you can visually see it gives you a visual reference how much i'm giving them am i giving them 200 mils am i giving them 400 mils like clones in a cup i give them 200 mils i know that off the top of my head i give 200 mils that's what a a clone cup gets so you can by process of elimination and having that scale to look at you can figure out what you need to water things in your garden and uh it really helped dial it in if you have just a regular big cup it's really hard to tell you know, how much water you really have in there, but just spend the few bucks it takes. I mean, those are plastic. They're not that expensive. Four or five bucks and you'll use it a hundred times or more. I've had one for years and uh, I agree. It's helpful, uh, especially more when I was running hydro to know exactly how many milliliters of certain things you're putting in. And uh, in seedlings now, I personally like do sort of like Kyle was talking about. I actually go half of the solo cup full and let the seedling kind of stretch a little then I backfill it like three quarters and then let it grow up a little bit more and I backfill it like all the way let it fill out in there for a tiny bit just like over the week or two that it's in there for and um, with the watering I just make sure there's plenty of holes and I'll water uh, lightly at very first when it's just sprouted but after that I always water um, saturate the entire medium until a tiny bit of runoff and I found that works pretty well with uh, most soil if you're growing in that and just letting it dry a decent amount between uh, each watering, which you can sort of get the weight of the plant, picking it up and things like that. There's a whole bunch of different tricks 
but uh, it works pretty well. And to answer the American one earlier, you asked, I uh, am smoking on lime kush from a buddy and it's very limey, uh, more lime than it is kush. So I could say that definitely probably has me spacey because as you saw, I went around the panel a couple times and <laughs> went back to people twice and uh, forgot people probably. And we've got the second hour coming around and we're talking back to basics. Uh, Jack Greenstock over here getting medicated with the chat in the panel trying to read the live chat and talk to the panel at one time. That's just a task that is a little more difficult than people give credit to when you watch like fucking talking shit with Eagle. I saw him earlier in the chat, shout out to Eagle gardens and like boom farms. Some of those guys, uh, it's really easy when you're sitting in the chat. Cause like you don't have to be active and participating the entire time. But as soon as you come on the show and you have to like, listen, like talk and do all that other thinking, it uh, becomes a lot more to balance. So I've got a lot of respect for everyone here on the panel being able to balance it i see some of their names in the chat bouncing up and uh definitely much respect to everyone on the panel for giving that engagement back to the community because that's what most of these people come for um one of the people dm'd me earlier and said i love it when you ask what is everyone smoking on because <laughs> i always see spartan over there token and ask i, I want to know what he's smoking <laughs> and some of them ask you in the uh, chat or whatever but it's fun to have it on the recording and uh, let the people know what we are smoking it usually is an indication that it's good smoke I love the video of uh, the the visual effect of when Spartan takes a hit, like he's doing right now. No, keep doing it. How the uh, smoke fills up the top of the piece. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's well when he when he exhales. When he exhales. Drum roll. Yeah, and it blows out the entire camera. I love that because <laughs> it's like it's like a pulse kind of. So like. It's uh, because it's so visually, um, there's a lot of movement. So my eye immediately is drawn to it. So it's kind of. Man, that makes me think I miss, I miss smoke sessions so much. Like I haven't sat and smoked with my buddies in so long. We, I mean, we dab on like virtual, you know, Zoom and stuff every day. And then there's not this and the stuff. But miss it, man. Go ahead, Tao. Yeah, it's not the same. And let me just backtrack quick once before I forget, because, yeah, like you were saying, we're all uh, medicated. But like you were speaking of when the hard shell of the seed pops off and sometimes there's that layer of uh, like saran wrap kind of stuff on it. I support it with my finger and spray it with a spray bottle. I have like a, a pump sprayer and that usually makes it drop off pretty easy. And then the thing pops right open and it looks so happy. So that's how I do that. So I just wanted to hit that in there. That's a great tip. I'm over here uh, emptying out my bowl into the ashtray. So anybody who's like, what the hell is Jack looking at down there and uh, spacing off? I'm either reading the chat or uh, packing myself up a bowl. So if you were wondering, that is what's going on. Dr. MJ, you've been quite quiet over there, and I want to give you an opportunity to lead us into the second hour. Uh, we're going to be talking about transitioning from the veg to the flowering stage of the plant. And right. if there's anything in particular that you like to do in that process. Um, for the flip with, with photo periods specifically, or just sort of like late veg into early flower? You can also mention like auto flowers when you see it transitioning, because I know you grow a fair amount of both. Um, and I'd like to hear your uh, opinion and feedback on that. Yeah, it's interesting. With auto flowers, I mean, you, you kind of have to just sort of watch the plant and respond to it. Um, you don't have any kind of real control over that like you do with photo periods. Um, let me take a, a couple of thoughts about flipping photo period plants first. 
Um, I, I usually try to do what I can to reduce the stress around the time of the flip. Um, so I walk them into the flip, usually by about two hours a day. I'll come off of 18.6 to 16.6, or yeah, 18.6 to 16.8, 14.10 to 12.12, um, which is really the opposite of, of what some strategies are to do an extended dark period during the, the flip or there, um, which I think adds additional stress to the plant. Um, you know, we go into a transition blend with nutrients, drop the EC a little bit um, to sort of reduce the stress on the plant that way. And um, yeah, you know, thinking about this is one of the, the sort of bigger stressful periods in the plant's life already. So um, not doing it right after a transplant, not doing it right after you've done some aggressive training or topping or other things like that, just try to spread those things out a bit. Um, with, or yeah, with photo period plants, uh, or sorry, with autoflower plants, um, the, the biggest trick, um, well, the question that I get asked the most is when to switch nutrient blends. Um, and if you're following my feed chart or a similar feed chart, there's always going to be a, a transition week, that first sort of week out of, after the flip in a photo period plant. Um, but there is, and it's really hard to time that with autoflowers. Um, if you can, if you know the autoflower really well, and you see that it's just starting to develop the signs of, of its transition into flowering, then you can hit it with that transition blend. But most growers end up staying on late veg until the plant is sort of demonstrably flowering, at which point you need to switch to early bloom newts. Um, yeah, and that's, that's an exciting part of the time of the grow in sort of either situation. Um, I think the other question that, that comes up a lot is when to flip and how big should the plants be and all the rest of that. If you have plants that are growing well um, going into the flip, then they will do most of their growing after the flip. So um, to have enough room for them still. And I think probably one of the bigger issues for new growers, especially new growers that are trying to follow my, my techniques is they flip too late um, and end up with just sort of too much plant for their space. I've had that happen to me uh, growing in cocoa myself, growing Blue Dream at four times its veg height in uh, flower. So it was like yeah. 10, 10, 11 yeah, that, You know, the multiplication, that whole thing, like it doubles in size or it triples in size. Yeah, I mean, it depends on how big it is to begin with. Um, it depends on how well the plant is growing during that time. Um, it depends on the strain, of course. Some strains are just going to be more vigorous stretchers, but th there's a lot of other factors involved, and I don't think it's really easy to just sort of slap a, a, a set percentage on things. Like that same strain, that Blue Dream that you grew, Jack, I bet if you had vegged it longer, it wouldn't have still quadrupled in size during the stretch. It probably would have still stretched the same, but it would have been a smaller proportion of its total growth, if that makes sense. No, I, I agree that it does make sense. If I vegged a bigger plant, it would have been much harder for it to, especially in that pot with that root space, get four times the size if it was a three foot tall plant at the start. Where yeah, it was a 10 inch it, tall plant. Exactly. So I think the better but way to judge like that is just to think you're going to get two weeks of really exceptionally vigorous growth. Um, and if your plants are growing well in late veg, it'll be like 150% as well as they're growing in late veg. And you're going to get two weeks of that 
Um, but it's not going to be sort of a set percentage of the the growth of the plant. I totally agree with that. And uh, it's an interesting time in the plant's life for sure. There's a lot of hormonal changes and, and things going on. And a lot of people go with different strategies and methods. I know Kyle has mentioned in the past that doing a few day dark period before the flip was a method that somebody told him in order to reduce the stretch. So I wanted to ask Kyle, I know that I don't think that you do that typically, but I remembered you saying that in the past. So with that being said, um, do you have any more to say about that? And uh, what is your traditional method for going from late veg into the flower? Do you have any tips or tricks or things that you do special or different? Yeah, so <clears throat> I spoke to a hemp farmer, uh, couple, it's been a couple of years now, or maybe a year ago, but um, yeah, so he had told me a couple tricks and things that he was involved in, and which I was kind of didn't quite believe because it's just something that was uncommon or haven't heard of, but uh, basically he said that if you do three days of darkness, uh, a full three days, that it completely stops all stretch, um, and maybe to like a 5% degree it would still stretch, but it wasn't much of anything, so I tried it on, uh, I don't know if you guys remember, I had this uh, cultivar named Elsa, Princess Elsa. Well, uh, I did it, I, I took, I had four, I put two in the uh, in, a, in a dark spot for three days and two I didn't. So I wanted to see a dramatic comparison like in front of me in, in reality and uh, it dramatically worked. It, it They just stayed where they were and just started flowering. Um, so it is true, but then I went to try it on uh, the land race tie and I don't know if it's because they're just so not, used to being tampered with with what we have going on it didn't work with, with them at all and i haven't done it a third time um but it dramatically 100 percent worked with uh with with the modern canvas cultivars that i had um so if anybody has any i would definitely if somebody has a plant that they want to try it on i would definitely suggest trying it because it did work um but yeah strategy wise i mean was your yield difference between the two you said you had two that you didn't do it to and two that you did was was the yield was there a big difference between that no, it was it was completely identical, just no stretch. It was uh, I was kind of blown away by by it, to be honest. And I actually might do it again just to verify it for a third time because I had one well, on one off. Awesome. Is that's there a awesome. reason that you want to stop the stretch? Uh, some people don't have. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you can if you can maximize height and not have the stretch and then just gain more internodes, to me that's valuable versus me cutting it short and then and then factoring in the stretch um so i'm just yeah i just think of that stretch as being really different than other kinds of stretching like when you guys were talking about earlier like having to support seedlings that were stretching um which are really stretching at that point from inadequate light and that's a kind of growth that we don't really want um but the growth during the period of vigorous early flowering growth that we call the stretch isn't like bad growth that that's sort of the the fastest the plant will ever grow um it's putting on good structure um it's not necessarily growing sort of longer internodally um i don't think that the the stretch really connotes the right terms there but that flowering stretch is just a period of really vigorous growth for the plant so I think that it would be better to set up a, a growing sort of calendar that allowed you to take advantage of the, the vigorous growth during that period, as opposed to trying to eliminate the vigorous growth during that period. I mean, generally as gardeners, I think vigorous growth is something we're, we're shooting for. Yeah, I agree. It's also cheaper in 1212 to run your lights. And, yeah, uh, I mean, not, if you, not if you're running it for three less days. And at yeah, the I mean, same basically, time, 
they both performed exactly the same. I was just able to save on space. So to me, for me, yeah. uh, it, it was it was beneficial. He sat there, he ran it, and it didn't have any negative effect other than it didn't right. stretch higher. They, but they ended up being smaller plants if they didn't do those two weeks of vigorous growth. So. He, said his, he said he didn't lose yield. Right. So if I would have just veg, I could now I can veg longer and save space, and I'd have a bigger harvest. Uh, or uh, just be you're just you're just gaining okay, more but that growth during that period of the stretch is vegetative growth so what i'm hearing when i hear this is i'd rather do all of the vegetative growth before i flip to the 12 12 cycle but those two weeks of vegetative yeah, growth is, after that flip are actually sort of the most efficient growth for the plant and that's what i'm saying i, I think it would be best to not try yeah, to eliminate but what he's saying what he's saying is he would rather he would rather get his plant spread out to where he wanted it and then just flip it to flower. There's huge uh, gaps during uh, that stretch. The nodes, uh, the, when, when a plant is stretching from veg to flower, it's, it's stretching the node. There's the node distance is farther apart. So there, I could see an advantage as an indoor guy to wanting your nodes closer together because closer nodes means higher yield. I don't think it's necessary that that growth during the stretch produces longer internodal spacing. Um, it can, but it doesn't necessarily lead to that. And and that also has to deal with managing light and training and other things during the stretch. But that's okay. Look at OG Kush. I've, I've it throws of, down and it stretches. I've grown a number of strains. I have never, ever encountered in all my years a strain that doesn't develop longer internodal distances while stretching to flower. But like with OG, oh, it fills in that gap with bud. Yeah, <laughs> like every, from where it stretches to where the other node is, there's bud to bud. Like if you look at, I think a, a well-grown plant of certain cultivars, it could have a huge node distance that's way bigger than it was in veg. But then when the bud flowers and it forms, the calyxes right. or whatever you want to call them, bracts, um, right, that fills yeah, in I that end up space. with long cattails like that, right? The the buds sort of encrust the, the top 18 inches or so of the colas. Um, so yeah, I don't think there's an issue with the, the node spacing there, but I've definitely, I mean, some plants just grow differently. The Jack Herrera, I think was probably the, the best example of one that really stayed short and compact. I mean, it put on a lot of mass during the stretch but it didn't sort of put on any kind of internodal distance. It was a very compact plant all the way throughout. Yeah, I'm sure Brandon, did you want to show us something? Sir. Um, well, anyways, I guess to, to, answer, to, to, to actually answer the question, if everybody wants to try that process, it, it's really, it, it helped, it's helpful in many ways to some people, but, um, but no, I mean, technique wise, I just jumped to uh, seven gallons in uh, Michigan made, which I'm really happy with that product. It, it, it outperforms in my opinion, uh, Soho and Coast of Maine by far. So if anybody's looking for a pretty good super soil, I, I would recommend that. Shout out to a dude named uh, Nutrient Shootouts in the uh, Michigan Bros Grow community. He uh, does side-by-sides with like Detroit Nutrient Company and a few other pre-made soils like Dairy Dew and uh, water-only mixes. And M3 won his side-by-side in that mix uh, grow off. So trying to keep all the things we're growing in the same cut, under the same lighting, uh, same conditions and everything like that so it's cool to hear that is the same for you kyle i also grow in that mix i love it and i've heard uh gauge green uh i think he goes by key play on instagram but gauge green group or gauge green genetics he grows in it and mass medical grows in it there's a lot of people that grow in it uh, spartan grown uses it as part of his base i believe so 
I definitely think it's a tried and true product if you have an opportunity to grow with it. I think it's uh, going to give you pretty good success. Here's a little look at my uh, these. I, f I forget which day of flower this is, but they're at the very beginning stage, like we were just talking about. You just flipped a couple days ago, according to your Instagram, at least what I saw, if I remember correctly. But uh, what did you do? Do you do any darkness beforehand, or do you just go straight to 12-12? Do you taper down like Dr. MJ? No, I didn't do much. I just flipped my time schedule. I put one of these boxes in here that regulates everything. It just regulates so I got a little CO2. Got a no, little AC. Oh, and I have a screaming bird. Aaron, I know you're a greenhouse grower. I believe, uh, do you do light up or are you full season? I do. I do it all. And, uh, and I did do, <clears throat> I did grow indoor for a long time. I got hired by a dispensary here in the Bay area to grow their indoor. And, um, so I, I, I've done it all and I've seen it all, man. And not to, not to sound like that, but yeah, there's, uh, can you walk it's us through not, your process with each, what you're doing right now? I, I know that I see your pictures on sure. Instagram, big, beautiful greenhouse, and it looks like some of them sure. might be set up for depth. Yeah. Uh, right now I'm depping, obviously it's depth season. So, you know, I got to deprive the, the plants of light. Um, I mean, dude, I could go pretty detailed, but the, the, the process is I propagate inside my living quarters. And so I take my clones in here where I can provide them adequate temperature and nutrients and I can keep a really close eye on them. From there, I put them into like red cups, solo cups, and put them like right out in front of my house with a little bit of LED light just to get them acquainted to the, this crazy mountain environment. And then I put them out in full sun in my veg greenhouse, which most of the year, both of my greenhouses, which are technically hoop houses, are uncovered. So unless it's raining, snowing, or really, really cold, I am um, open to the air until I dep at in the evening. And then, so from veg space, they go to my flowering hoop house once they're big enough and I have the space. And, um, and I pull my depth tarps at 7 p.m. and 7 a.m. I usually let them root into that, you know, 15 yards of soil up there for a week or two. Um, but uh, once they're rooted in through the fabric pots, so they're in 10 gallon fabric pots at that point, um, they grow into my, <clears throat> into that trench soil that I have there. So it's like a sunken bed. It's, uh, it's like, you could think of a raised bed, but just, I dug a hole in the ground and buried all my soil with the hardware fabric under it to prevent gophers and moles and stuff. And I have a fan that I run for a couple hours at night to pull the humidity out of the, the depth tarp when it's pulled. Um, I'm totally off grid, so I have no power and um, everything I do has to kind of tiptoe around that fact. I do have power, but it's self-created. So I have a generator here on the property that, you know, we only have maybe 12 hours of power during the daytime in the summer to run our ACs inside, but then it's off during the night. So I have to find other ways to, uh, to get creative, to get power. I have six deep cycle RV batteries. I convert that power. I invert that power with an inverter. So I run some lights and stuff overnight that way. And 
What time How much do you, you want to know? <laughs> really, what I want to know is what time do you pull your tarp back? Because it has to like do you run, you run around a twelve twelve. So yeah. to create that outside. A lot of people have never grown like that before, so they don't even know how do you make that happen. Like, oh yeah, so tarps is a is a whole thing, man. It's uh, seven o'clock p.m. I go up and I pull the tarp closed. So like right when we get off the show, I wander up there, I start thinning on plants, and seven o'clock I pull it. Um, at that point, when I pull it, I unplug my supplemental lighting and plug in my fan. Can't draw too much power, so then I go up there at seven a.m. and I pull it off. And, um, you know, I run my fan for an hour or so before I pull the, the tarp off also to try and just prevent humidity buildup. And because I have power at that point in the day. Now that you uh, kind of walked us through your greenhouse process, if you were uh, doing full season, you sort of get the plants out there and let them rip, which uh, makes sense as nature goes. But you said that you have done indoor in the past. And if you were going to be doing an indoor grow, what would you do when you're transitioning from your late veg to uh, flower? Because uh, that way you've got a timer now, so you don't have to pull any tarps or anything. But do you have anything else special that you would do in that transition process? Ah, uh, um, uh, really heavy thinning usually. Try and stress them out. I know that kind of goes counterintuitive what a lot of people say, but if I have healthy plants and they're going into flower, um, I want to create a little bit of like tension and get them sexy and this is all like old grower shit like that i've just like learned through hands-on experience and i know that there's not a lot of science or literature to back a lot of the stuff up that i do or say but um but i could tell you for sure that a little bit of stress goes a long way i think that when uh, sometimes you remove a certain amount of leaf before it you're still working with the same root zone and then the rest of the plant you know is maybe better able to vigorously grow. And I've seen a lot of people actually do that, like I'll call it day zero or the week before or even the day before flower strip and uh, have a lot of success with. Right, abscission, abscission stress is what that's called. And in my mind, it is, it is a low stress technique, but certainly if you strip, if, if you look at the three alight guys, they strip, you know, or, or Miami Mango, I think does it too. They strip like- He does 2142. Day 21 yeah. and 42 is the Yeah, the and it's like type. it's like a naked, you know, you see those plants there, butt ass naked, but the reason they yield is because they were healthy before that happened. You can't do that to a plant with like aphids or you know, they also stack much more numbers than a typical home grower, I would say. Um oh, yeah. packing plants really, really densely and and if they didn't then I think they'd have PM and mold because even with the most dehumidification you could possibly get in there, you're gonna have microclimates if you don't pull off some leaves. So like Certainly Spartan can talk about it, Mitten yeah. Canico, they crush it and they deleaf pretty heavily. So it's a hell of an IPM too. <laughs> You're right. You gotta, you gotta remember that's a hell of an IPM too. When you oh, make yeah. plant pans, plants together, you gotta create airflow. And so you do that by ripping off leaves, but as a side benefit, you're also removing a lot of food source and a lot of places for bugs to hide. So very true. I was working with somebody who um they were trying to figure out whether or not they could use uh, cold temperatures to um, uh, sort of uh, facilitate or, or actually not facilitate uh, pest population, particularly aphids. And the thing about it is that like extreme, like insects are exotherms, they can't control their, they can't regulate their internal body temperature uh, particularly well. And the way that they typically do this is that if it's too hot, they find somewhere where there's no sun or, or heat beating down on them, like the other side of a leaf, for example. Um, 
And if it's too cold, well, there might be forms for that or for a lot of insects, they overwinter as either adults that can like diapause or as eggs that are like really hardy. And so like for aphids, for example, like um, there's in some research I've read where um, if you can bring the temperature down to like zero degrees Celsius for like four hours, it was like 100% death rate for several of these aphid species examples they gave. But if it was even like a few degrees higher uh, in Celsius, like five, like three or five, like for some species, they had like a 50% survival rate, which still 50% death is pretty good. But um, over like hundreds of hours, like the populations continued to be alive. So, you know, like they're, a lot of insects are pretty cold hardy. Um, and then for high heat, uh, if you get too hot, um, plants might wilt or they might have problems and they might die. But for a lot of other um, herbivorous insects, that can be a problem for them too, because they'll have trouble molting. Um, their body regulation will be very good. The microbes that they uh, rely on uh, to process their food um, or be some other sort of uh, important physiological effect like synthesizing nutrients, they might die. So there's a lot of things like that where temperature can be helpful in that way. I wanted to comment on zero degrees Celsius. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people are aware, but that's 32 Fahrenheit, but it's also an important break point because it's freezing. That's when water will freeze. And I think uh, in nature, physiological certain breakpoints like that are important to be aware of because um, like that one in particular, he just said could go from 100% death rate for certain pest aphids, I believe, to 50% if it was just three, four, five degrees warmer. And um, one, one of the interesting things they also mentioned since you brought that up is that like, um, like the leaves, like they can, in the plants, the plants might be able to survive way better than the insects. And one of the things for aphids was that uh, the aphids didn't necessarily displace um, when the cold happened. So they kept their stylets in the plant. And then when it got too cold, uh, they damaged their stylets because they used saliva to kind of like, they use a very liquidy like saliva and they also will have a saliva that's like a gel that like keeps them in place. And so with the freezing temperature that destroyed them um, in that way too. So even if for the ones that did survive at very, very low de degrees, maybe not freezing, um, some of the plants also would have damage too. So like they might survive, but either their mandibles are destroyed, so they'll starve to death or the plant is somewhat damaged, which might make it harder for them to feed on it. That's why, for example, it's useful for some plants to lose all their leaves during the winter time, because unless that insect feeds on the, on the trunk or the branches or something, there's nowhere for it to really get purchased and it'll die off. I still think it's an important aspect of temperature and, and pest control even. Like it wouldn't be a terrible um, thing to bring the temperatures down when you spray. You know, oftentimes you, it's a good idea to turn lights off anyway. That's going to bring the temper, the room temperature down. The lower temperatures is going to bring the metabolism, we'll say. Uh, they're going to breed a lot more slowly in lower temperatures. So um, it's, it's, it's smart to, to do some of those things. You know what I mean? Maybe not turn the air conditioning on, but you can at least turn the lights all off and, and take those steps. I definitely agree with that. Um, I think that it's one of like, for people who can control the environment in that way, um, there's a lot of clever ways to sort of use like physics, right? Temperature change and humidity and 
uh, all those sorts of things. And, and temperature is a big one, I think. And you're right, all their physiological processes kind of slow down. So they might not die outright, but you might be able to like really slow down that onslaught of like reproductive growth and some of the really highly reproducting, uh, reproducing insects like your aphids, for example, those things, born pregnant, live birth, clones, it's, it's uh, quite a bit, right? They can get out of hand really quick and be extremely difficult to control. Um, do you have any quick tips for non-temperature related ways to tackle aphids if you have them? Well, um, if you let your, like, actually like Spartan was saying, one of the problems with um, letting the plants sort of get really bushy and, and dense with their foliage, not a problem necessarily, but if you're trying to use some sort of a, um, a pesticide or some sort of spray that's a contact that's a contact killer and the ones in cannabis typically are, then it would be very difficult to have the, the uh, active ingredient make contact. Um, with with the uh, with the pest, for example, so having less foliage or less dense foliage can really clear that up and make it easier. Um, cannabis aphids, especially in a home growth situation, you have less plants. A lot of the times, I mean, don't uh, don't discount the the oldest way in the books, which is manually removing. Like, if your area is like four by four or four by six or something like this, um, it might not be too laborious to like just crop scout your plants and check them and you know if you find some just take the leaf off or multiple leaves off and put them in a bag seal it tie it up it's important you do that part so they don't crawl out um and just throw in the trash you know that's super simple this costs you zero dollars and zero cents usually and then let the lacewing and uh and uh, lacewing larva and aureus insidiosus clean it up right and then in addition to that also if you see that you already have somehow with there's outdoor indoor like biocontrol agents that you recognize lacewing larvae, um, hoverfly larvae, and their pupa. It's very important to be um, aware of what those structures look like so you don't accidentally kill a beneficial. It always breaks my heart when people send me pictures. It doesn't happen that often, but sometimes they'll be like, well, oh, what's this? I killed it, but what is it? And I'm glad that they asked, but sometimes it's a beneficial and they're like, oh, that sucks. But now they'll know, now they won't forget. I've had that same DM many times. Usually the, I think it what used to be called hypoaspis miles, but now it's called uh, stradiolelasimitis or something. Often people uh, think that- The taxonomy for the entire hypoaspinae is um, a waste bucket taxon. It's kind of hard to really put them diverse or really know the difference, but anyways. I often see people get them uh, usually with like compost or something with the soil and they often assume right away that it's a problematic pest because they see anything moving in their soil. They're like, oh my God, it's an issue. Kill it, burn it with fire, like get rid of it, like throw it away. But uh, often I'm able to actually identify them with the speed, speed that they move at. It's a lot faster than many uh, non-predator insects that I see. Yeah, that was one of the fact questions that I got for the IPM video I'm making right now. And, you know, like... It's, it's very helpful, I think, if people are able to even sort of um, recognize the major features of like various insect um, orders, just to kind of be like, oh, this kind of looks like an aphid, uh, or at least the major families maybe, or super families in those orders. Like this looks like an aphid. This is what a leafhopper generally looks like. This is what a thrips 
typically looks like, um, that sort of a thing. And then the other part is behavior. Like you said, er herbivores are going to stay on that plant usually, and predators are going to, unless they're ambush predators, move around and try to seek out their prey. I think it's funny because the more organic I push myself to go, it's like now I'm I'm finding bugs outside and I'm considering bringing them inside. <laughs> I'm like, man, maybe I should bring this in there. <laughs> that is literally the best way to do it. That is the best way to do it. Because yeah. it's natural in your area. Indigenous predators is the best thing you can apply in your garden. Yeah, so that's what I'm doing. I'll see a bug. I'm like, I need to figure out what this is and if I could, it's helpful or not. <laughs> I found the praying mantis cocoon in someone's backyard near my house. And that thing put out like thousands of those things. It was insane. Those are, uh, not to be pedantic, but those are called egg cases. They don't, they don't make cocoons. Just in case. <laughs> my, my apologies. Google it. Boom, roasted. Boomer. But with that said, Tao, did did they all live? Because I hear often when they're like, if you bred it in a glass cage, you could have uh, however many, whatever Matthew just correctly labeled it, uh, yeah. egg cases. But then only like one or two will survive because oh, they all no, fight and eat each other. Well, there was a ton of them at first, and I was collecting them and throwing them outside. And then a couple of them that I hung out, they got huge. And yeah, there wasn't many after a while, but... Um... So they probably did eat each other a couple of them. But yeah. I think I remember when we talked about this in the past, you said kind of it got to a point where like each one sort of had its plant. Like you'd see it like kind of hanging out on the top of the plant. Like it was like, this is mine and like hanging out and just literally like kind of guarding that one. You only see like one per plant and they're very territorial with each other. And uh, if you got multiple plants, it could sustain it a little bit better. A glass. Fucking creep me out. I'm not gonna lie. They're like little fucking aliens, man. They creep me out. They look at you. Can watch them follow you, dude. They follow you around. Like they watch you with their oh, yeah, they, and you move yeah, around. Yeah, yeah. They know you're there, man. But that's Mantis good. Are... They're photogenic. They're looking at you to take the picture. It works. Yeah, they get the hell out of my garden. They can go somewhere else. They, they're outside. I'm fine. I don't want them in my house. Mantids are one of those one of those insects that like they really visually contract things pretty well and. It's pretty surprising to me. It's like hornets are another one, like wasps and things. Those things, they can, apparently there's research that they can uh, recognize like facial features in their own, you know, in their own colony. And they keep track of like markings and that sort of a thing. Uh, they're a lot more, I suppose you could say, uh, complex than I think a lot of people realize. Uh, it's funny, we think nature is simple. And then the more we study it, the more we realize exactly how sophisticated it truly is and how uh, much some of these insects are able to communicate and do amazing things within their colonies. And uh, it's pretty wild. There is no such thing as simple. I think that it's, it's specialized. And if, if we think it's simple, we just haven't figured out what they're specialized for. I've heard somebody say the more I learn about something, uh, the less I feel like I know or something like that, because the more you get into it, you're like, oh my God, this is so broad. And there's so much Matt, to it. Matt had a great post about that. I think it was, it was you, right, Matt? About the learning curve, how it kind of. Oh yeah. Like, you know, sort of the people attribute to a lot of different things, but it's like the, basically it's the experience curve, right? Like you aren't very experienced and you think you know a lot 
and then you, you you dip down and find out you know very little about whatever this thing is and then you kind of have incremental wins and wins and then you kind of have you you eventually hit like a balance of confidence where the extremely experienced people tend to be much more uh balanced in their assessment and therefore perhaps much more uh, true i suppose in their perspective whereas people who are less will fluctuate wildly between highly confident and highly unconfident i suppose yeah Doc, did you have something to say? Yeah. Who, me? Yeah, I saw your thing light up over there. I don't know if it was a... Oh, no, I was just answering. I was answering a comment in chat. I'm just sitting back. I'm actually cleaning up my space, getting ready to harvest my plants tonight. So I've just been enjoying the conversation. Don't mind me. We were speaking about like the basics. We kind of talked about transition to flower. I know we haven't gotten the American one, but you just sort of talked about you're about to harvest. And do you have any... uh, Thing that you do different or uniquely at the coming up to the final stage that you do before going into the chop drying cure <laughs> well that's a whole show i think um those pre-harvest rituals that we do um you know i haven't done much right now i'm not entirely sure what's going to happen to the third plant two of my plants the third plant was the plant that didn't flower that i thought i was going to have to um murder about a month ago that then started flowering and now it heard you talking smack it heard me talking smack it decided to flower and and then it had to go on the ride with the rest of the plants and their nutrients which it didn't really like that and um i'm not i'm not sure how much longer i'm gonna let it go by itself in the tent basically at this point but since there's a plant that's not coming down with the other two, I'm not doing an extended darkness, which I normally would do before the, the harvest. Um, I flushed them for two days. Oh, this is gonna. This is the third day since I started the flush. So um, I've been, you know, three total days of sort of really low EC water at the end. Um, and then I'm going to go in there. They're in the dark now. I have lengthened. I mean, I've only been running a four hour dark period with these autos. Um, so I lengthened that. It's like 10 hours today. And I'm going to harvest them um, right at the end of the 10 hours. I'll go in, um, keep it pretty dark in there, use my PVC pipe cutters um, to just chop down the the stalk of the plant right at the stalk and that's a cool tip pvc pipe cutters work really well for harvesting an entire plant at once um and i'll pull them out and then i'll turn the lights on on that third plant and sort of make an appraisal of what i'm going to do with it and uh then i i enter what we call trim jail Uh, i will be trimming god i don't know through tuesday probably um, the two plants I'm taking down probably have eh, like seven to nine ounces a piece. Um, one of them looks like it's going to be pretty easy to trim. The other one looks like it's going to be a beast to trim. So we'll see how it goes. It's fun. I use that same technique with the PVC cutters. Um, I love it. I will say I've destroyed a few. So buy rigid brand. They don't pay me, but they're the best. Yeah, yeah, get a good set of PVC pipe cutters. But yeah, it's like the perfect, it's like a little ratcheting, click, 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 and you just chop right through the, the stock and and they'll fit around almost anything. So it's a cool tool for that. I'm glad and other people Fisk- use it. Fiskers just came out with a ratcheted plant cutter that I bought and broke within two weeks. So don't buy that one. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the PVC, it also doubles as a PVC pipe cutter when you need to cut PVC pipe. <laughs> 
right. or bamboo stakes for those who use those. Yes, it works really well, and you can cut them in place. Um, it sort of snaps right through them pretty easily as well. So it's a good all-around tool. I recommend a PVC pipe cutter in my product guide for all of these reasons. Before we go into uh, drying and curing, because we won't have time for that tonight, I wanted to get the American one. Uh, your thoughts on the flowering process. I don't know if you got your earlier stuff in, but um, what you do kind of all the way up to the late stages and all the way up to that point of chop. Well, I, yeah, I don't do all that much. I'm, I'm using super soil. So by the time I'm sticking them in flour, they're already in the flour gallon containers. Um, I put them in there. And yeah, I'm never set 100%. I don't like, but I'll lollipop it and de-leaf a whole bunch between, you know, during that first two weeks. And I won't feed it, I, I don't feed anything, but after the stretch, I'm, after I'm confident that done stretching, I'll give it either a top dress. No, I'm gonna start giving them all a top dress, I think. And uh, and uh, and just let them go from there. Feed them straight water, maybe microbes, but I haven't been even doing that. What's your top dress? I was, okay, so we were just talking about this. Uh, I did, I got some big roots and I also got some of that M3, the M3 had a bag of each, but I think I just put in a cupful of big roots, a cupful of earthworm castings, two tablespoons of seabird guano. I just happen to have seabird guano, but oftentimes I'll have that guano, but I figure either one would be good. If I had them both, I'd be one of each. And a quarter cup of langionite. And I mix that up in a little container and then I put that at the top dress on each one. I do each one individually with that amount. So and what some are you, was, what are you going after like, with the guano? What are you going after with the seabird guano? Is it phosphorus? Yeah, it's phosphorus. It's the high phosphorus ones. But you said you top dressed um, with lamanite? Yeah, and I did that too, yeah. Well, your lamanite Someone was saying it might, be low, it might be a little hot, a little hot. No, that's a good mix. That's one. a good mix right there. Lamanite is right. fire, dude. I've been using that yeah, shit for six I years. I love lamanite. When, when, no, when I'm not I saying, I'm saying, I was saying, I was going to suggest to omit the guano, not the lamanite. Yeah, yeah, right. that might be a little bit much on the potassium side. A little too much, no, no, maybe? No, no, the guano. No, the it's guano phosphorus. It's potassium. It has phosphorus, phosphorus and calcium. Yeah. Ah, okay. All right, there you go. Yeah. So here's the so thing. It's like about a PK boost. All right, I'll listen yeah. to Russ because he knows what he's doing. <laughs> okay, so that seabird guano is going to be something like 0, 11, or 0, 12, 0. Exactly. And, and okay, so that is a really good source of uh, soluble uh, phosphorus, but, the, but you're also getting that calcium. Here's the thing. A lot of or, inorganics, exp, I, I know from doing my testing, Dude, my plants eat massive, I'm talking massive amounts of calcium. Um, so if, if having that uh, extra uh, extra calcium and that extra uh, phosphorus, you can't really have too much phosphorus in organics because it just kind of cycles through unless it's, w unless it's way, way high. Um, so that's, that's going to work really well. And then cannabis also use, uh, eats a ton of potassium. Like, like it's crazy how much potassium that they go through. So having that langbanite is good. Plus you get that. Extra Spartan, you uh, isn't, mentioned isn't phosphorus an immobile nutrient in the soil. In my understanding, potassium and nitrogen, highly mobile, but phosphorus, not so much. Well, yeah, I wanted to so ask you can have a about. lot of it, and then um, a lot of the uh, biological, a lot of it's um, available through biological aspect, and then obviously direct contact with roots. 
And I was thinking, with the parts of it that are water soluble, the water will push it into the roots too. Because I was watching that Calacamus Coots talk too. I think that's who it was, right, uh, Aaron? Uh, I don't know about push the nutrients into the roots. Uh, he didn't say that to my No, I'm saying that. Like the water, when you water, if you top dress and you water hard, it, it'll uh, carry some of those particles in. Down I think that, that might have been Glenn, uh, but. Okay. Yeah, talking about calcium specifically gravity will pull it down because it's so heavy through the soil calcium is a metal yeah spartan i've heard you in the past mention uh maybe some study that you saw where cannabis when it was deprived of phosphorus i believe in particular it didn't reduce yields and you were like well i'm not gonna push a bunch of phosphorus in my flower because if it doesn't reduce yields to be deficient in it why like pay and like put a bunch more hot stuff in my soil but on the same token tau i'll say this Sometimes a good organic plant, if you don't overdo it, like a, a light amount, like it sounds like you are, um, having multiple forms of whatever it is, uh, phosphorus or whatever, your microbes, whatever population you have, may prefer one or the other and break them down at different rates. So one's available earlier, one's available later. So I think that even in uh, salt-based or liquid-based nutrient systems, I've seen that used. So I think with that sort of like buffet mentality, I think it uh, is okay to have that I'll diversity. Add that Phosphorus, you know, is kind of a problem on our planet. You know, phosphate buildup is like the reason, you know, a lot of us growers are in trouble. So do be careful because you, uh, I, in my experience, overdoing phosphorus is undoable. And, and I, nitrogen I, heard, overused. I heard if you put too much phosphorus, you could kill microbe life too. Absolutely. Too much yeah, anything so. can kill microbe life, but phosphorus but, is easy to overdo. You know what, I think organics, organics is a little different, and I, I'm thinking personally that I've been undernutrienting my, well, it seems like they're handling it nice and really thickening up more than um, I would see after this, only <clears throat> only about a week in. But I, and I think the timing, you got like that timing is important. You don't want to give it a whole bunch of nutrients when you push it in and it's going to be in stretch mode, because then it will, it'll, it'll uh, stretch vigorously. And uh, yeah, I'll mention that too. I noticed on one plant that I was growing for a while, when I introduced CO2, and I didn't realize because they had a shared room, the CO2 was on all the time. Man, that plant stretched like never before. It was, it was, it was crazy. It was like a totally different plant. And I think it was the CO2, but yes, I do. Uh, I'm with MJ Coco on the, uh, those variables that affect the stretch for sure. CO2 is very much one of them. If you introduce CO2 versus never having CO2, it might look like two entirely different plants, uh, yeah. depending on the level that you grow it at. Yeah, well, the way we grow, most of the time, CO2 is the limiting factor that, that prevents us from growing sort of bigger plants. So absolutely. I wanted to make one sort of quick comment about um, phosphorus mobility. Um, phosphorus is mobile in the plant. So if the plant is experiencing a deficiency, it can reallocate phosphorus from older leaves into newer growth. Um, the issue with mobility of phosphorus is it's not very mobile in the media. Um, it's not very mobile in soil. So roots can only sort of access the, the phosphorus that's in the immediate vicinity of the, the root zone. Um, and for that reason, I think phosphorus has sort of a reputation of, for immobility, but it is a mobile nutrient in the plant. Yeah, very, good, why, very good distinction. Yes. That's why, that's why microbes and other things that can do that sort of uh, facilitation 
uh, are so valuable because typically the that that wasn't the case and like the first plants that were eking out in existence outside of the uh you know water like hundreds of millions of years ago they had to like mine the rocks kind of and let the water like erode away and allow the 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 nutrients like phosphorus to be available you know what i mean so um microbes made that a lot easier over time and so did vascularization so spartan it's uh coming to that time i know that you mentioned earlier you're going to be doing the big marathon uh going from the uk show to this show over to the michigan bros grow show so adding a little on to the marathon today so i want to give you the chance to uh do your shout out and uh head over there and get ready for your next show well thanks guys this was a you know I always look forward to this show. It, like, I don't know. It's when you get doing things. Well, we've been over a year now, right, guys? So uh, it's like, I don't know. It's it's almost like habit now. And I miss it like so much when we miss them. So, or when I miss them. So it's, it was good to be here. It was like uh, scratching that itch. <laughs> it was like scratching that itch. You know what I mean? So uh, awesome to see chat and everybody in chat. If I missed you, I'm sorry. I've been smoking for two hours before this. So I wasn't as bright eyed as I usually am. And uh, yeah, come on, see how high I get on the next show. <laughs> what was the name of that first show you were just on? I want to shout those guys out proper, but I, I'm Percy's uh, What was the name? It's on Percy's Grow Room is the YouTube channel. And, uh, so like whatever. the Grower's Tapes or something? It's high, high on Homegrown, I think is what it is. Oh, okay, they've got homegrown. a few different ones. And so, uh, yep, on Percy's Grow Room channel. And shout I'll be on the Grow's Grow Show channel coming up here shortly. So we'll see you guys there. See you guys. See you next Peace week. Out. Yep, that'll be coming on in about eight minutes. So, uh, Peace out, Spartan. The last few weeks we've been doing the uh, little bit of an overshoot, but I think uh, this week with the amount of panelists we have, by the time we go through it all, um, unless anybody has some final comments they want to make, uh, I think we could go through and do our final shout-outs. But uh, maybe you could raise your hand in Zoom or, or just uh, go ahead and jump in if you have anything more to say before your shout-outs. Well, I'm going to I'm going to take off cuz I have uh some work that I have to do. I have some Bokashi stuff, I'm working on the website. Uh, I'm working on scaling production and I'm also working on this putting together this 40 acre farm, so uh constantly busy. It's always a pleasure to be here on the show if, uh with all the rest of the panel members. If uh anybody wants to check me out, you can find me on Instagram at rust.brandon. Um, thanks again for having me guys. I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for coming. And I really look forward to, uh, hearing about the work on the larger farm. We always appreciate your input on here every week. So thank you for donating a little bit of your time to us in the community and dropping some knowledge. And, uh, we look forward to your future endeavors and I respect your hustle. You got a lot of stuff going on at a large scale and I know it's not easy to do, to do and to do it well. And, uh, on paper, man, it's tough to beat some of the numbers that you're putting out over there. And, even the images, the quality, uh, everything that you seem to be putting out seems to be very high quality. So props to you and the work you're doing over there and keep it up. Keep up the great work and thanks for uh, joining us. So next up, I'll pass it over to Coco for Cannabis, Dr. MJ. And thanks for hosting, Jack. It was a fun show. I like these shows where we sort of all get to chime in on various topics and we get to see the diversity of different sort of uh, you know, techniques and get to learn a little bit more about how all of the rest of the panelists grow. I think that's a lot of fun. Um, 
Yeah, so come on over, visit us at Cocoa for Cannabis. We got a lot of fun things going on. I have been working a lot on our Grow Light Guide. I have uh, several new videos, one posted just a few days ago. Um, check that out on my YouTube channel. I'm getting into sort of fun explorations of grow light physics as I do some of these par tests. Um, I gave away a light this morning or this afternoon, I guess it was technically this afternoon. I gave away a Spider Farmer SF2000. Um, and I'm probably going to set up another giveaway here coming up soon. So be sure to, to check out that. And we are signing up for the Plant Training Grow Challenge. Um, our flip date on that is October 1st. You can start your plants pretty much anytime you want, um, but try to gear up to flip on October 1st. So a bunch of us are going to start sort of mid-August. Um, we're going to have, you know, thousands of dollars in prizes available throughout the Plant Training Grow Challenge. I'm lining up some cool lights, some tents, some exhaust systems, all sorts of fun things that we're going to give away there. It's entirely free. All you got to do is sign up and grow along, grow together. Um, so come over to check that out at CocoaForCannabis.com forward slash challenge. And thank you again. Enjoy the panelists and all the chatters. I uh, have done so as well this week. And thank you for coming. And I hope people do look into the uh, grow offs because like you said, it's free to enter. All you have to do is sign up on the website and you can grow along with other people. It's a lot of fun. And with this uh, giveaway opportunities, that's going to be a great way for a lot of the newer growers in the community to add on to their existing grow setup and maybe improve upon things that they have right now that they're maybe not so happy with. So uh, Dr. Yeah. MJ, thank you for doing that for the community. I think it's a, a good service that you're doing. And I love all the lighting reviews that you're putting out uh, recently. It's a uh, really awesome thank you, Jack. Of, uh, fair reviews and uh, show people that it doesn't have to cost extreme high amounts of money. This is uh, the cheap home grow podcast. So we got to make sure that the people know just because you don't have a bunch of money to throw at your grow doesn't mean uh, good success so definitely check out dr yeah. mj's reviews and all that yeah no there are some good lights that are available in in the budget market now and i really think that they're good enough and cheap enough that it really does not make sense for anybody to buy the the sort of lower quality lights so if you're setting up if you're curious about lighting or any of those things we've got numerous articles test reports the grow light calculator all of that i'm working with um, several manufacturers who are all excited to sort of get involved in the grow light calculator project. So come check that out and see what it's all about. But it's definitely geared towards helping growers make better decisions about grow lights. Thanks, Jack. Thank you. I uh, didn't realize my mic was open while I was grabbing my cat to show on the camera there. But uh, it's been great having you. And uh, next, I'm going to pass it over to Aaron, the grower, for his sign out. Thank you for having me, Jack and Shane and everybody else who makes this a thing. And I love coming on here because everybody is so smart. And just like uh, Dr. MJ said, I love like just pinballing stuff back and forth until we like shake it out. And we really just kind of sometimes divulge unique strategies, which is a lot of fun. Um, I'll say that Matt and I, as long as Matt's still up for it, have something planned in three days or so, maybe four. We haven't picked a day, but we're going to kind of jump into uh, trichome ontogeny if you're still into that, Matt. I don't know, but um, but I have to it. I'm so, for those who don't, so just for those who uh, don't know, trichome ontogeny is like how trichomes developed, uh, what's their origin in their like development, and what co what sort of like influences that. And that sort yeah. of thing, because it's so a really cool subject. 
oh, it's going to be so much fun. We're going to dive into, you know, what, what a trichome is and, and, and what it means to be a trichome in a, in a forest of trichomes. And uh, yeah, so that's it. Just check out this stuff I got going on. Coot and I are, are working on a lot of stuff together too. And I, I, I meant to shout him out. He joined, I don't know if anybody saw it, but Clackamas Coot was in the chat for a few minutes. I texted him and I told him, hey, come, come check it out. But uh, so I signed off during that time. So I couldn't actually shout him out at the appropriate time. But uh, shout out Coot, uh, Jim Bennett, uh, one of the best people on the face of the earth. Great guy and he has a great, great soil mix and uh, I've grown in it and definitely highly approve of it. I want to try that gnarly barley uh, sometime and shout out to Coot. But I want to pass it over to Matthew because uh, you were just brought up and uh, you could give your sign out and any little bits of information you want to add on. Yeah, I really enjoyed um, the interaction this uh, session. We have been doing it for quite a long time and it does feel like uh, almost traditional at this point. Um, I always like it when there's cool IPM questions to answer. And yeah, if you're interested in integrated pest management information, education, you can find uh, the vast swath of my work either on the YouTube channel, Zenthanol, which is the same one that I'm commenting in, and um, on my Instagram channel at SyncAngel. And like Aaron said, we will be talking about trichomontogeny pretty soon. And I would also be interested in talking about um, a few other subjects lately. I've been trying to work more on my videos. Um, I'm working on an FAQ video right now. So if you're interested in some basic IPM information, I'll have a new video coming out in a couple of days. So you can check that out too. I look forward to it. I uh, personally really enjoy the content that you're producing, making available to the community. I uh, usually refer to you as our IPM specialist, but it seems more say like, cannabis researcher because at this point you've done a lot more than just uh, integrated pest management and I really appreciate all the knowledge that you're sharing with the community and backing up with the uh, sources to where you found it. I love that kind of information. I also like to share it as anybody knows. So uh, shout out to Matthew Gates. Uh, he's Sync Angel and Sentinel. Looks like my connection's unstable. Hopefully I'm not cutting out. But um, Matthew, do you have anything more? No, uh, nothing really more except that uh, I, I'm happy that I have the opportunity to do this so often. And uh, the amount of people that I've interacted with, I feel like I've made a big impact. Um, so I continue to do that. I can say that firsthand. I've seen you help and maybe even save gardens on Instagram of people that I get to communicate with. And they're very thankful. They've said it to me. I hope that they uh, say it to you as well and maybe support you on Patreon and the tip jar if they're able to do so. Uh, next up, we have two more uh, other people on the panel who are still here with us. Uh, Kyle, Predicative Breeding. Go ahead and give your final thoughts and shout outs. Hey, yeah. Uh, thanks, Jack, for hosting again. Thanks for carrying the torch. Um, um, yeah, I'm just really happy to be here. Uh, I know I was kind of missed a couple days here and there in the past, but just had a lot going on. But I do plan on being here full time again. Um, if anybody's looking for any good seeds, man, pbreeding.com. If anybody has any questions about breeding or anything regarding to what I'm doing, I'm on all social media platforms at Predicated Breeding. And uh, yeah, I just look forward to next Sunday. And, uh, you know, I'm even more excited. Well, yeah, so to rehash, uh, anybody who's living in California, I have a, uh, a nursery that's going to be running my strain down there. So uh, that's some exciting news for me. You guys will be able to try that. Uh, should be in dispensaries at some point. But um, yeah, other than that, I'm just really happy to be here and I uh, look forward to next week. 
Thank you so much for coming, Kyle, and uh, definitely make sure to check him out if you're interested in his genetics. Uh, Peabreeding.com is where you can find them. And I believe uh, the last one is the American one. Well, if you really want to save the best for last, I should let you go first, Jack, but I'll, I'll finish. No worries. Um, shout out to you, dude, for hosting. You do an excellent job all the time. You have that uh, soothing voice, uh, which works with your uh, spit filter. I like that. Shout out to Shane for the originator and the uh, yeah the founder of Cheap Home Grow. Shout out to the chat. It's always good. I wish I was more active. Sometimes I get sidetracked and stuff. And uh, it's always good chatting about the plan and how to make her happy. And uh, yeah, I guess that's it. You guys know where to find me. American one on the American one on YouTube, and just find me on IG. You guys can do it. Thanks so much for joining us, Tao, and uh, definitely uh, maybe next week we'll have you go last, uh, as you proclaimed before. I don't know if we were live yet, but <laughs> the most handsome for last, and personally my favorite accent, not to uh, pick on the panel, but I just love the American One's accent. Eagle Gardens, who uh, maybe in the chat still always says he sounds kind of like Ben Diesel. <laughs> Speaking of the chat, shout out to <laughs> Nugs, Modern Genetics, Red Eye Rustler, Adam T, uh, Run to Your Fate, Mountain Skies, Thank you all for coming. There's a lot more people that I'm not going to uh, name right here and now, but we really appreciate all of you, the people that are listening live and those who listen afterwards. Uh, without the community, the show doesn't go on. So we definitely appreciate all of you. And we're more than happy to uh, share the knowledge when, when we can. And this seems to be a great time and place for a lot of the people on this panel. So I'm happy to be able to step in as hosts and keep the show running as long as I can. And uh, I've appreciated uh, every time. And I really thank all of you for coming. <clears throat> if you want to find me at Jack Greenstock on Instagram and Cannabuzz or Jack underscore Greenstock on Twitter, I'm out to Medleaf Delivery. You might see I'm wearing a little uh, shirt. My wife got a job over at a delivery service in the Oceanside area. Uh, it's between Los Angeles and San Diego. So if you're in the North County, San Diego area, they have some uh, good products for a pretty fair price. I personally, not to be too much of a shill, <laughs> but I use this one all the time. It's a RSO, like you were talking about earlier, Aaron. So shout out to Rick Simpson because he's the one who got basically everybody onto the cannabis oil as medicine. So, and he's treated thousands of people and I think he's a cannabis warrior. <laughs> shout out to him. If you, if you don't know who he is, look into his story because that guy, he's a legend in my book. And, Never forget, uh, long live the king. 100%. So I use that as my medicine every single day. Um, little dose in the morning, little dose in the evening. And uh, it definitely helps me with a lot of different things. So shout out to Rick Simpson and uh, Medleaf Deliveries. They carry that, but they also carry a variety of flour. And I'm a bit of a flour snob and they carry some stuff that I like. So check out some of their stuff. Without uh, any more to say, I just want to thank everybody for coming. Have a great week. Grow love. Grow love, guys. Peace out, all.